Hello. Hello. Oh. Oh, there you are. I was afraid for a moment that you had forgotten our appointment. Why, you almost scared me to death. And that won't do after all the pains I've taken to scare you. You remember me, don't you? I'm your host on behalf of the makers of Carter's Pills. And you're to be my guest tonight in the mysterious circle of the inner sanctum. Come in, friends, won't you? Welcome to the broadcast. Before we present this episode, I would like to remind you that we are sponsored today by the one and only FreshBooks. Directors Club Podcast is welcoming this software that helps you organize your books, create invoices, tax records, employee records, and so much more. Cannot recommend it enough. I've been finally using it to get all my documents in order, including my many receipts for my own business, the Now Playing Network. FreshBooks is a cloud-based accounting software service designed for owners of all types of small client service businesses that send invoices to clients and get paid for their time and expertise. Visit gofreshbooks.com slash directors club to try this wonderful software absolutely free. You'll begin to get organized and have all the time in the world to play the audience like a piano. (laughs) You once said that... uh... You like to make an audience scream through technical means. What is it about an audience screaming that you like? How many times have you heard a woman say, Oh, I went to see the movie and had a good cry? That's true. They do, you see. Now, what is a good cry? She never says, I went there and had a bad cry. Otherwise, she wouldn't have paid the money to go in the first place. So these people have paid money to be... uh, Scared. Hello. Today's preamble for the show, the intro here will not go long at all, I promise. I just want to say thank you so much for listening to an episode that's been long overdue, mainly because of the, um, I guess you would say, intimidation factor to cover one of the greats, one of the masters of cinema. Yes, Alfred Hitchcock is the center of discussion today, much like the past two episodes we did on Sidney Lumet and Stanley Kubrick. Hitch will undoubtedly receive a part two in the future. For now, I want to remind you of a couple things here at the top. Bill Ackerman's wonderful new podcast, Supporting Characters, is now available at NowPlayingNetwork.net, as well as through iTunes. Um, The first interview with David Blair is a real, real treat for fans of Zulovsky, uh, Hard to Be a God, and so much more um, on the future of cinema. I cannot recommend it enough. Supporting Characters is now part of the the family, so please subscribe. Um, Alongside Eric Childress's Movie Madness, of course, and Jim Hankey's Vinyl Emergency, both of which are not only two of my favorite shows to listen to currently, I look forward to them every week, but I will definitely be making guest appearances uh, in the next few months, I'm sure, hopefully. But please visit nowplayingnetwork.net, um, especially to check out the first episode, if you're a cinephile, of Bill Ackerman's supporting characters. Um, 
And as I mentioned towards the end of this episode, I am going on spring break, but will return in mid-April. I've enlisted Al Chikovsky. I think I got it right this time. <laughs> and of course, Bill Ackerman. What a shock. Uh, to tackle the work of Adam Egoyan. I've asked them to do an episode without me. So they're going to do a Goyan without me. Simply because once a year I do decide to take a little break. Just to catch up on other things and have some freedom in watching random Blu-rays at my leisure. Um, but the big news is that in May, around my birthday, my talk show radio, or my radio talk show hero, Nick DeGilio, who I've mentioned many, 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 many times, will finally join me on this podcast. And, uh, boy, are we taking on a director that everyone's been itching to hear about, and that is the one and only Martin Scorsese, Scorsese, tomato, tomato. Thank God this episode is happening, and I'm going to be nervous. Uh, so there's lots to look forward to in the weeks to come. So you got an episode without me, a special bonus episode, and we'll return in mid-April, I'm sure, with, um... With an episode, I'm, I'm going to finalize the schedule probably tonight. Um, but uh, that birthday present to hopefully both you and me with a discussion with WGN's Nick DiGilio on Scorsese. Can't wait to put that out there. It's really um, a highlight for me. So without further ado, I present to you a wonderful conversation with a dear friend of mine, Kate Blair, who you will be hearing more of this year, I'm sure. Thank you again, and enjoy our discussion on the one and only Alfred Hitchcock. We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you? Welcome, everyone, to episode 104 of the Director's Club podcast. I'm Jim Laskowski. And boy, oh boy, am I honored. I'm honored to be talking with somebody brand new once again. And, uh, you know, much like the Kubrick episode, I have ventured out into new territory to have a conversation with someone whom I've, I've met in passing, talked mainly through technology, but I've been dying to talk film with for quite some time after reading her blog, Selective Viewing. She is none other than Kate Blair. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah. We're going to have a very interesting conversation. This episode has been a long time coming. Uh, much like Sidney Lumet the last time I had to state up front, there's no way we can contain all of his work into one episode. It's just impossible. So expect a sequel. You know, there's, there's probably people, you know, going to listen to this and be like, you know, why aren't you going to talk about th this title? Why aren't you going to talk about uh, fr uh, Frenzy or Torn Curtain? Lifeboat. Um, Lifeboat, yeah. Um, it could happen next time, guys. So don't <laughs> worry. There's going to be a sequel episode for a director like the one and only Alfred Hitchcock, also known as the Master of Suspense. Although, if you delve into his filmography, he's done a wide variety of genres, not just suspense films. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I know our previous guest um, from the Lumet episode, Brian Talrico, mentioned the idea of doing different eras, starting with, like, his early British work, um, which is kind of a cool idea, but I also am, I don't know, maybe I'm scatterbrained to some degree, but I also like dipping into the different eras. 
and you know um, sort of highlighting them all and picking apart and deconstructing the different eras just like picking out two or three films from those eras and um, you know just talking about them at length so that's pretty much what we're going to be doing here we we've got quite a few titles to get through um, you know but I, I feel like if you do have issues with that sort of scatterbrained approach and you think that like you know doing because we kind of did this with Spielberg where we just we pretty much went in order from beginning to end um, and you know just highlighted certain films from the beginning and then the middle and then the end of his career and that that worked out really well but it's really hard to just say okay let's do a an Alfred Hitchcock episode and only specifically talk about you know the man who knew too much 39 steps lady vanishes they're all great films and you can do an entire episode on them for sure but it's hard to just say um let's not do vertigo till later right yeah <laughs> when you're sort of really itching to get to the goods um but yeah so but i mean if, if people feel like that's in the, you know something they would rather hear i'm open to that for the future for other directors with large filmographies as a possibility. Um, so yeah, I mean, I sort of walk into a filmmaker's career with the idea of it being a pinata. I just want to smash it open and see what comes out and then pick through the good stuff at first. Um, you know, I, it's, it's an interesting approach. I don't know if it always works. but um, I like that metaphor, yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of like an instinctual feeling I have when I... Like, look at Wikipedia and go, oh, those two titles, those two titles. Oh, I wouldn't want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. It's like more just the impulsive, I can't wait to talk about these certain films, first and foremost. Whereas, I mean, I'm going to briefly mention something like The Trouble with Harry, which I don't really love, but I think it's worth talking about, simply because Hitchcock himself went on record as saying, like, I think that's an underappreciated classic of mine. <laughs> um, so... You know, there's certain titles that you want to bring up, even if you don't consider them to be one of the greats. From they almost all of them have moments that are cool to talk about. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, so, yeah, of course, to you, listener, if there is a title you want to hear about for the sequel episode, don't hesitate to make me aware of it over at Directors Club Podcast at Gmail dot com. Send me an email with your thoughts on this episode and uh, what you'd like to hear for the sequel episode which could happen next year, the year after. It's sort of up in the air because there's still other directors that we haven't even done one episode on that we want to get to, too. Um, but yeah, so we're going to try our best to go through these chronologically. Um, but yeah, I, I came up with a list, and you know, Kate mentioned a couple of titles that she would like to bring up as well. We sort of collaborated via Facebook Messenger, and um, I just pretty much start out the show here by asking, you know, the guest about personal experiences. And this is something I've been meaning to do with new guests anyway, um, before we even get to Hitchcock. I just kind of want to know if there's a particular film or director that made you fall in love with movies early on. Like, what made you just... (laughs) I know it's a broad question. I know it's, like, hard to narrow it down, because, like, I always equate, like, I had these three moments in my life where... I knew I wanted to study film, or I wanted to just... Film was my thing. You know, obviously music was too, but film was just something I wanted to, you know, deconstruct and, you know, go to classes and learn more about. 
Was there a film or a director early on in your life that you can think of off the top of your head that sort of made you fall in love with movies? That's, well, no one who I would probably like now, but I know movies have been sort of a magical place for me to disappear since I was really little. Um, I've always loved movies that way, and I know, like, most people do. Um, So honestly, probably, like, Disney movies were the first things that I really loved. I I, I watched Pocahontas and then went outside to my backyard and started talking to my willow tree. (laughs) So things like that. Um, But I guess the movie that made me realize I wanted to study film, which I did, um, was Eight and a Half, Fellini. Yeah. Um, because he just done he did things that I'd never seen before, um, and made me feel things that I'd never really felt before when watching a movie. Um, and so I went through a phase where I really liked self-reflexive movies um, that are about yeah. filmmaking, and I've sort of moved beyond that now. But um, just like thinking about filmmaking um, through a film uh, really got me excited about studying it. So I really enjoyed Eight and a Half a lot when I saw that in college. Oh, that's a great choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's I really I, I really um, respect and appreciate any filmmaker that's willing to be that honest and open about their love of cinema. You know, the, even to some extent, how they grapple with it and the struggles they face with it, and what it means to have that personal vision. The way they express it can be complicated. And Fellini doesn't shy away from that. Um, mm-hmm. And that it's like, it's not all, you know, glamour in Hollywood. Some of that's there, but it's just, you know, being able to express yourself in an artistic way is satisfying and fulfilling and gratifying, but it also can wear you down and exhaust you and, you know, do a lot of things to your soul. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's... Yeah, that's that's an incredible. Ch- so, did you study film? Um, you know, was that your major and whatnot, or? Um, not okay. Well, I have a bachelor's in English, um, and I took a lot of film classes, but didn't yeah. take the right ones to be a major or a minor. Um, but I have. I went to um, University of Chicago and got a master's in cinema and media studies. Whoa! Yeah, with the thought that I would go on for a PhD, um, but that didn't happen for a lot of reasons. Um, Mainly, I realized that's not what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So now I sort of just write what I want um, and sort of engage with movies on a more personal basis. (laughs) Yeah, I always thought that if there was one thing I'd be comfortable teaching, it would be film. But then again, I, I wouldn't want to turn film into, like, I don't know. I have to have a curriculum based around it and a presentation. And I mean, but I, I do enjoy you know, engaging with people, even in a group setting, about it. To where it was like, that's the one thing I probably can see myself teaching other people. Um, and I know former guest from George Miller, Colin Suter, he actually teaches you know younger children about film and how to shoot film, how to watch film, how to study film. And that's really admirable and really great that he does that. I, I, I never went for my master's in cinema just because I was like, I, I had that fear almost with when I was going for English too, was 
what am I going to do for, with as a career? I love reading. I love watching movies. Mm-hmm. But all I kept hearing with with a bachelor's in English was like, well, all you can do is teach. All you can do is teach. There's a whole lot. Or you can maybe, if you're lucky, be a copy editor somewhere. Right. You know? And I did that for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah I, yeah. I was very close to getting a copy editor job at the Chicago Reader because I had a connection, but that didn't happen. But alas, you know, um, you know, film and podcasting sort of became this beautiful marriage for me. Um, and I couldn't be happier about it. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, I feel like there's 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 still still something to do with film that I'd like to be a part of in a bigger way. But at the same time, I'm also just very happy with watching it at home in my sort of introverted way and and studying it as I please, um, researching it on online, and then talking about it on the show with somebody mm-hmm. like yourself. Yeah, and uh, like with Hitchcock here. Hitchcock's reading in the dead of night Take a lot of film strips, learn to splice Projector guy Cinephiles were waiting for this film to come alive Hitchcock guy Nasty birds will fly kids and peck out your eyes your first Hitchcock viewing experience like? This one I do remember pretty well. (laughs) It was Rear Window, and it was in a high school class. Oh, yeah. And um, I think I'd never seen a Hitchcock movie before, but I did know who who Hitchcock was and that this was a Hitchcock movie. Um, But yeah, I remember really, really liking it. And also, that was one of the first old quote-unquote movies I ever saw. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like, oh, this was, I, what, what even was it, like 57? Yeah. Something like that. Around there. Mm-hmm. But I'd never seen a movie that old, which now doesn't seem that old after yeah. all the other things I've watched. But yeah, um, I thought it was really scary and I was really, really interested in it. Um, I was just, I just like couldn't look away and I was like, oh, older movies can be good too. <laughs> that was my first Hitchcock movie and my first dip into classic movies, I guess. Yeah, mine was very similar in that I saw Psycho in a high school film class. You know, it was the same teacher that taught drama, and she taught a film class, which, unfortunately, I don't know if any high school does that anymore. Um, You know, like, they don't even have creative writing, practically, but uh, she showed us Psycho. and that's, uh, that's cool. It was the first time I ever heard the word voyeurism. I just remember thinking, hmm, that's really interesting to think about. 
you know, um, Norman Bates looking through the wall and what that means and what it means to watch that as an audience viewer and how we're all voyeurs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it became like this first experience of like, you know, watching a movie in a different way than just like, oh, I'm watching this to have fun and, you know, be entertained and sort of zone out and lose myself. It was more of like, hmm, I'm actually thinking a little bit deeper about what that camera shot means, Mm -hmm. why he decided to frame this this way, or why is it this angle tilted for that particular reason, because I had a great teacher that just knew how to engage its students and show interesting films. She showed true lies, of all things, which which is kind of funny to think about, because it is kind of a silly escapist movie, but at the same time, she was like correlating certain camera shots from Hitchcock into True Lies. Yeah, like, now that I'm thinking about weird. it, it is kind of a Hitchcockian sort of movie. Yeah, until it becomes a dumb sort of <laughs> Schwarzenegger action movie in the last act. It's actually, it has its moments where it's like, yeah, this, you know, kind of a spy, caper yeah. kind of a thing. Well, isn't there, and Jamie Lee Curtis is sort of like pretending to be someone she's not, right? Right. Is, right. Yeah. That's pretty much the only thing I remember about that movie is when... He's asking her to dance. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all everybody remembers. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty that's much. probably true. We should let people know okay, yeah. about your puppy. <laughs> um, there's a couple other people, or, uh, <laughs> well, people, I guess, creatures. <laughs> creatures in this room right now. Um, my puppy Theo is here, and my cat Ira. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> Theo's currently gnawing on a rawhide chew, so if you hear some chomping, that's probably what that is. Um, But otherwise, he would probably be whining and asking me to play with him. So, please forgive uh, the chomping noises. (laughs) Um, They're very forgiving. Yeah. They're they're listening along, but they just need something to occupy their mouths and paws and such. They're they're excited to learn about Hitchcock, too, I can tell. You know, even if they're engaged with other things, they're, 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 they're listening. And Ira, my cat, is looking at us very intently, so I think he's excited, too. Yeah. He is gazing at us a little bit like Bruno from Strangers on a Train. That's true. Yeah. You know? That, there's one shot in that movie that I just adore. Where, you know, it's at the tennis match. It's one of the most memorable oh, yeah. shots. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like, I think... That could be the first example of a shot like that, and then a lot of thrillers sort of replicated it to some extent. But boy, oh boy, it's really hard to narrow specifics. Like, I thought about, and I should have mentioned this to you before, I don't think you know, but we do have, at the end of the um, conversation, we come up with our top five. Oh. Which might be difficult, but if you, <laughs> if you can just, you know, you know think. I'll, I'll go first, but okay. you can sort of think... Like what would be your top five Hitchcock movies? But I was, I was so tempted to do top five Hitchcock scenes too because oh, yeah. like that's that would be so hard though because like you mentioned in pretty much every one of his films, there's something that stands out, even if it's not like a you know thrill ride from beginning to end or something that engages you um, throughout its entire running time. You will find at least one scene, one camera shot, one performance, something. That's going to stand out to you. Yeah, or just haunt you forever. Yeah, yeah. Like, p- people were buying stuffed birds today at the thrift shop, and how can I not think of birds in a whole new context with experiencing rewatching that again? 
and still being terrified by it. Mm -hmm. Um, But we'll get to that towards the end. So, we can start at the beginning. Right. I mean, well, it's not the very beginning of his career. Um, As most people know, he started out doing silent films and, you know, worked exclusively in Britain. Um... And did a lot of incredible work there that I just haven't haven't not experienced yet myself, but a lot of people do speak very highly of a lot of his earlier work. Um, the 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 one Hitchcock himself has seen and have enjoyed immensely a couple times now is the Thirty Nine Steps, which um, you know when it came out in Criterion I watched it and just instantly fell in love with it. Um, and the reason why I felt like we should, we should start there, I mean maybe there are examples of tropes and you know certain um hitchcockian touches possibly in the earlier silent films but this one sort of establishes a lot of what we expect um from a hitchcock movie i think you know uh just a a lot of the classic tropes like a macguffin a wrongly accused man um a blonde that may or may not be deceitful (laughs) yeah um you know and suspenseful sequences Obviously, there's even a train um, in the movie where I'm just like, man, Hitchcock and trains. If I was a psychoanalyst, I would I would be focusing on what, what's with you in those trains. <laughs> I um, was wondering that earlier because there's a lot of things about the trains, but <laughs> yeah. we'll probably get to that. Oh yeah, throughout pretty much every movie. Um, but yeah, I just um, I enjoy this movie. I think it's fun. I think it's really funny. Um, you know, there's there's one scene in particular I really like when the the protagonist ha- is being mistaken for a political speaker, and he has right. to give this rousing speech, and he really gets into it. Um, and he really pulls it off. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's like, oh, there's Bernie Sanders right there. Yeah, pretty um, much. <laughs> no, it's just like, I'm sure, again, like, maybe that has come earlier, you know, in in the trajectory of films and filmmaking. But, you know, that's that's this is such an early example of things that so many films would emulate later on, including Hitchcock himself. It's It almost seems like this is the foundation for something like North by Northwest. Like, North by Northwest is the Hollywood version of this. And this is the indie film British... Mm-hmm take um you know early on when hitchcock didn't really have much of a budget and stuff yeah they do seem like bookends to me they're very similar yeah yeah i mean there's there's a lot of really cool touches to it and i mean hitchcock's humor really appeals to me it's obviously very dry and british at times but it's also kind of morbid which i kind of like um like even early on with the mystery man on stage um like the guy introducing him goes uh and when this when the mystery man dies his brain is going to be donated to, to yeah. science and the whole crowd cheers yeah like yay <laughs> you know so it's like that that's that's again like earliest on um what we that's kind of hitchcock's humor right there um like sort of playfully laughing at death <laughs> right yeah um, but yeah, I and mean, then sometimes taking death very seriously. Yeah. Oh sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he sort of teeters upon that. Like he just he can, you know, be darkly comedic about it, but then get very intense and serious. Like he can teeter between that so beautifully. I think. 
he finds that nice balance. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you do you enjoy this film as much, or is it just like not necessarily innocuous, but kind of something that you know doesn't stand out compared to uh, what 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 what's to come in his filmography? Um, it it did stand out to me in some places. Um, it definitely doesn't compare for me to a lot of his later work, but um, there's some things that I, that I find really interesting. Um, for like, I don't know why this stands out, but the scene when he uh, is sort of in that cottage with like the peasant and his wife. Oh yeah. Um, I like. I just think that their repartee is interesting. They have mm-hmm. like this very obvious sexual attraction. Um, yeah. And then it just doesn't really go anywhere. Um, he just runs off to um, to the blonde woman, whatever her name is. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that that sequence, for some reason, is really memorable to me. Um, and that she's helping him escape. Uh, and her husband is sure that they're sort of going behind his back and in a way he's right but not exactly mm-hmm. I just think that's that's actually that's a theme that comes up in Hitchcock um, sort of these depths of role playing um, and assumptions I think but yeah I really like that the, the husband is like oh well you guys are carrying on an affair um, and they obviously haven't consummated it at all but it's in their eyes yeah. body language that they want to. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, it's just like acting out, role-playing a fantasy of sorts that kind of manifests itself, and he is such a recognizable figure. I don't know what John Ford looks like. I don't know what Howard Hawks looks like. Mm-hmm. But I know immediately what Alfred Hitchcock looks like. And I think it's because he put himself, you know, out there. He put, you know, he was so able to... Um, appear not just literally in his own films as cameos but he loved to do trailers he loved to do his own playful trailers the one for psycho is really silly um so like he, he just decided to put himself out there as almost a celebrity figure way before people like tarantino to hear like he was this really shy introverted um recluse of sorts he was so comfortable being in front of the camera just as much as being behind the camera and, you know, going off of the role-playing idea, he wasn't a huge fan of actors. Right. <laughs> but he he also, I think, to some degree, admired them. I think, yeah, I think that's true. He said that, what, they should be treated like cattle, yeah. I think is the quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I often, like, don't feel like that's actually the case when I'm watching his movies. No, I don't think so either. He is to me, an actor's director. Um, <laughs> That's, Kitty, Kitty's getting Yeah, wild. my cat's knocking some stuff around. Yeah, he's, he's reenacting scenes from 39 Steps. I'm really <laughs> impressed. <laughs> oh, that, that happens. It happens when, when you have animals. But, yeah, I mean... He's a very complicated individual. Um, sort of going off the... Uh, just... His uh, his relationship with actors is interesting because everybody talks about like oh he had this predilection for blondes and whatnot, um, but he also really really loved 
um, actors like Cary Grant. Right. And became infatuated with Ingrid Bergman. Right. So, to say, like, uh, actors are like cattle, I don't really care, it's not really how he felt. You know, he, he, he actually really appreciated and admired them, and to some extent wish he could be um, like that. Like, you know, I read somewhere that he wished he could be Cary Grant and Notorious. Um, just have that sort of, like, suave persona. Right. You know, and I think, um, you know, in something like 39 Steps, you sort of see that, like, he wishes he had that sort of playful lifestyle, um, being able to come across all these different women in different ways, uh, and just sort of living the life of a spy is kind of fun. Like, he portrays it as fun in most of his movies, not like... I mean, there's some danger involved throughout, but certainly there's a sense of playfulness, I think, too, which is what I appreciate in a lot of his films is he doesn't take it too seriously all the time. Yeah, and that's interesting, actually, because I think another thing that's interesting about 39 Steps is that the main character sort of goes through all these transformations as the movie goes on. So it's almost um, sort of a film about performing Especially the scene you talked about where he does such a good job inhabiting that role of the political speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, so much that they look at him and he almost like becomes that, like, he knows what exactly what they want. And yeah. Just goes for it. Um, but yeah, and I guess the one thing I noticed was also consistent throughout a lot of his films is they end very abruptly. Which I don't think is bad, and I think it's sort of apropos for that era of filmmaking. Like, I think a lot of films, whether we're talking about Michael Curtiz and, you know, I think, I think they just, they, they, they seem to end very quickly. And I think, you know, even people complain about vertigo just sort of ending. Oh yeah. You know, and just kind of, Oh, that's the note you want to end on. Huh? That makes me feel weird. Um, but you know, I think 39 steps, you know, ends the way it should end overall. And I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with the film and it's like a really great starting point to see what, how he started out, mm-hmm. and how he how he evolved, and where it all began, um, but I don't quite have the same unabashed love for that film the way I do for Lady Vanishes. I, you know, I've seen this film twice. I just rewatched it, and it represents a turning point in Hitchcock's career because it was one of the last films he made with, um, or one of the last films he made in Britain. And then mm-hmm. he would later go on, you know, having to work with David Selznick, and that wasn't always fun for him, because he had to deal with, you know, studio heads and people like Selznick sort of dictating what he should do. Right. Um, so this is very, another sort of, not necessarily mistaken identity, but uh, the first thought I had watching this, and I believe my uh, my former co-host Patrick felt the same, was... It made me realize that Wes Anderson, I think, is inspired by this film. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, not just like the Darjeeling Limited Train stuff, but the Grand Budapest Hotel. The uh, the initial half hour before we even get on the train and Lady Vanishes sets up all these wacky situations and characters inside of a hotel, and you know, a gliding camera at times that sort of just made me think, huh. I wonder, I wonder, I don't know if Wes Anderson ever cited this film in, in any interview or anything, but it just had this energy and playfulness that I, and a really good sense of humor 
that I associate it with with Wes Anderson. And sort of like an ensemble cast, almost. And like the shootout at the end reminded me of the shootout in Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, You know, once we know who all these characters are, they sort of join forces. And, you know, I I love that. I love it when a film introduces a bunch of characters separately. And even they're not like together until the very end when all of a sudden they have to combine forces and do something together. That's always fun for me. But, um, yeah, the, the, the fight involving the magician on the train right. is one oh, of the most wow, yeah. hilarious things, I think, in all of Hitchcock's films. Um, and I'm going to say something pretty bold. I, I probably will go back on this maybe after we're done recording. <laughs> <laughs> but Margaret Lockwood might give my favorite performance oh, really? in all of Hitchcock's movies. I love her in this. And it's very effortless. It doesn't call attention to itself. I mean, obviously, there are many others we're, we're going to touch on, like Vera Miles and obviously Anthony Perkins and Joseph Cotton and, and Shadow of a Doubt. But I think Lockwood is such a delight, and she does, she makes it seem very easy, and she's not somebody I'm very familiar with, to where it really felt like, oh, uh, I'm experiencing you know something completely new with this actress, and you know it's it's it's, it's very fitting for the time, and she has great comedic timing and. She's just very believable. I just I mm. bought everything about this movie. I just loved it. To me, it had it does have like a more woman centric point of view than yeah. most of his movies do. Um, in that, like the main character is a woman, and then um, she is trying to convince everyone that this other woman she saw disappeared. Um, and so there's like the central relationship is more. It's just. Um, sort of like a friendship between these two women. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, one a thing that I think is interesting about this movie is that there's this almost sort of gaslighting experience where people are trying to convince her that her perspective yeah. isn't right or is wrong. Um, and I find that really interesting, that she overcomes that. And she's like, no, uh, this this really happened. This woman existed. Let me yeah. find her. She's not easily brainwashed. Yeah. Um, I mean, she plays along maybe for a scene or two, just like knowing, like, well, I guess I have to play along just to appease everybody. But, yeah, I I think that just the whole setup to this, you know, with somebody disappeared, everybody's denying it, and she's the only one who, you know, is is looking for her and believes that she's missing... That that's just a, that's just such a good mystery mm-hmm. at the core, you know, um, to where you're just invested through and through. You want to find out what happened, and I can't tell you like the reaction I have to when she writes her name on the window oh, right, of the yeah. train, and then you know, like twenty minutes later, we go back to where they sat. I'm like, where is it? Where is it? It's going to be there. I know it's going to be like my mind is primed for the reveal of that to happen. And it happens so perfectly. Um, that's the thing about Hitchcock, too, that I noticed. In all of, he knows exactly when to reveal something. <laughs> like, unexpectedly at times, but just perfectly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's he's such a master at the reveal of something unexpected, but just uh, fitting for the movie. And that that's just like a good setup for something like for her to write her name in in the window and then it's going to appear later as you know just a perfect setup for for that. 
But um, yeah, and but here I also realize that there's a real nice dramatic heightening later on once the the train is kind of see you know there's a siege involving um they seem like nazis at the time but this is a year before the nazi party or this is a year before world war ii this came out um but you know they're 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 attacking the train and uh one guy decides to walk out and he gets shot and it's actually you know not not shot for laughs it's actually kind of intense and once again there's just a, a feeling of of tension created after all this kind of like hijinks and humor a little bit like oh you know d- just chaos and with a gun and everything it just it sort it sort of becomes really fun uh, but also really intense at the same time when uh, the shootout occurs which mm-hmm. I really appreciate um, but one complaint I will have throughout most of Hitchcock's films. And it's like the only thing that keeps it from being a masterpiece in my mind is that they shoehorn a love story, a, like just a love development between the two, uh, you know, the the guy that believes her eventually right? and her. Um, it's like, oh, they, they just get in a cab and decide they're in love and they kiss and they want to get married. <laughs> like that happens a lot. Um, in Shadow of a Doubt, Charlie just suddenly starts dating the police officer that she just met and she's... Practically like two dates in, oh, I'm in love with you. I mean, I just, I mean, I know that again. That's that's we're talking about a different time period, where they sort of, that's that's kind of fitting, I guess. A lot of movies did that. A lot of uh, older films seem to treat love very differently. Yeah, well, in a lot of his movies, I think it's definitely a device or something yeah. that the plot sort of hinges on. Um, I think there's something about a single woman in Hitchcock films that is like very dangerous and like mm-hmm. they often vulnerable. Like need he like there's like a need to tie that up or um punish her in some way. Um so yeah, I think marriage I feel like uh a lot of his films like almost have to end in marriage otherwise there's this sort of like unbalance or yeah. like I'm not sure how to describe it, but I don't know if this Feels is one of those like um the lady vanishes didn't feel that way to me so i agree in this one it's kind of like what's what's going on here it wasn't necessary <laughs> to have her you know fall for this guy because she also she was going home to her fiance yeah oh and, now, and- <laughs> now all of a sudden like oh we went through this crazy dangerous situation like sandra bullock and keanu reeves and speed you know suddenly like oh we're in love after going through all that crazy shit hmm i i just it's not something that's necessary. Maybe it's just, you know, maybe at the time that seems fitting for those types of movies. And like you mentioned, um, maybe traditional values sort of play into why a movie has to end that way. Otherwise, it just feels like if she just walked out into the night by herself, the audience wouldn't feel satisfied for some reason. Like, oh, there needs to be a coupling yeah or like this woman has been too independent this whole movie yeah. we need to fix her up with a mate before it yeah before it ends yeah because there wasn't just there wasn't the awareness of you know gender politics and all that going yeah. on so i watch these movies knowing that but i'm it's hard not to i can't tune it out mm-hmm. like I, I watch them going yeah that's that's kind of lame <laughs> you know but everything else about this movie i adore I uh, I do like the little hint of um, 
the possibility that the two guys who are really excited about the uh, it's not rugby match it's some kind of match cricket or something it's that, cricket yeah mm-hmm. that they're really excited about I like the fact that early on in the hotel it, the real real little hints that they might be gay <laughs> yeah little little hints throughout that I, I really kind of find amusing um, when they're obviously in bed together and they bring the paper down and you see them together um, and how like they're kind of repulsed by the the, the maid of the hotel coming in to change. Like, they're kind of repulsed by her coming in all the time and interrupting them. So, I don't know. Like, that kind of stuff makes me makes me laugh. Um, this whole movie is just kind of a joy to sit through. It really mm-hmm. is an example of, um, of Hitchcock's strengths early on, I think. Um, and I just, I just adore Margaret Lockwood in this. I just think she's a great central uh, female protagonist. And I never feel like, you know, Hitchcock is... Um, you know, portraying her uh, as a stereotype of any kind, or you know, like oh, just the damsel in distress, and right. here comes a man to save her. I mean, she does have a man by her side at one point to help her, but she's still in control. Yeah, he's like her Watson. Yeah, <laughs> they play that at one point. Yeah, they sort of play the the Holmes and Watson roles. I really like the scene um, where. Uh, the lady vanishes <laughs> at that point. Um, or when when Margaret Lockwood falls asleep and wakes up and is just looking around the car and everything has changed since she went to bed. Um, oh, when like before she falls asleep, there's this magician and he's yeah. doing a disappearing uh, act for this this child. And then she falls asleep and wakes up and that pairing is gone um, and she's back to... I think some people she was sitting with earlier, that one guy who's just, like, gaping mm-hmm. at her. Um, and I think that's, like, one of the scariest things to me when the camera pass, um, pans by him and he's just sort of staring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's a little and, creepy. Yeah, and then there's um, an empty space where uh, Dame May Woody is, was supposed to be. I think it's a very interesting scene. <laughs> and I also like the fact that the lady that vanishes actually turns out to be a spy oh, for the yeah. government. Mm-hmm. I just think it's really cool, and I I don't know how plausible it is to remember like sp- secret spy code through song, but I find it charming. <laughs> I find it cute that like you got to memorize this song in order to send it, you know, to get it over to the embassy, and it it's, it's, it sends all the code and the messages I need to get to them. And- yeah, and well, there's a parallel there with um thirty nine steps where. They're using Mr. Memory to yeah. smuggle those. Yeah, no, good call. Yeah. So I think that's kind of interesting. Just um, instead of documents, it's like it's all in, in you. <laughs> yeah, in the brain. I wish I wish my brain worked that way. I know, me like too. Mr. Memory. That'd be great to remember every little detail. Um, I'm also not sure how the song contains the information exactly <laughs> my guess is being a musician that maybe the chords oh that could be like spell out something i don't know what you would spell out but maybe face f-a-c-e ace <laughs> i don't know what you would spell out um in terms of words maybe egg <laughs> so egg face so maybe there's somebody had a code name egg face that's very possible. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's just a wonderful film. I can't recommend it enough. Like, it's it's one that I would love to just show to people who are like, oh, I just know Hitchcock from Psycho, and you know, 
I, I just like to show that there's just completely different sides to him, including one that would be outright comedic, but still have a great mystery at its core that just sucks you right in. And uh, I mean, I, I know other films like this kind of ridiculous Jodie Foster movie that takes place on a plane called Flight Plan uh, came out. I don't remember, maybe like in 2005, 2006, where it's the exact same plot as Lady Vanishes. Oh, really? I don't even know if they credited it, but you know, her daughter disappears on the plane, and everybody's denying that she was their daughter was never there. Oh, that neat. She's created crazy. Um, I haven't uh, seen that, but that sounds cool. But you can't have as much fun on a plane as you can on a train. You know, a plane is just like, what, you just, you have first class, you have the the main seating area and the cockpit, mm-hmm. um, maybe the storage area or the baggage, the luggage container area. <laughs> I yeah. don't know how you describe all these places. <laughs> but, you know, in, in, in the train, you got all these compartments. And I think one of the really cool things about the train is that you can even go on the outside of it. I think yeah. that happens a couple times in his movies. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Which is really impressive for, for its time. I mean, he, he uses a lot of rear projection, and he even said himself that, like, uh, I wasn't a fan of going out location, so I tried to just stick to, you know, rear projection and, and working within the studios and on sets and stuff like that. Um, I mean, that would later change. But, yeah, Lady Vanish is wonderful. Just a wonderful film in every way. Uh, I have no complaints. Shadow of a Doubt is an interesting film. Um, you know, we talked about Margaret Lockwood, but um, Joseph Cotton here, what a remarkable villain right. he is. Uh, and it tackles one of my favorite themes in all of cinema, really. It's just the prevailing notion that something dark lurks underneath the surface of things. Uh, you know, Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm. You know, just like... Um, what do you think of this one? I'm curious. I mean, I sort of just touched upon, like, I love the theme of this movie quite a bit. And it's something that if it just appears in a movie, I'm kind of on board. You know, whether if it's Todd Haynes with Safe, Todd Salons, I mean, David Lynch. Um, but again, this seemed like the precursor to all of those in terms of, like, corrupting the family unit in a way, or at least mm. showcasing, like, how it's not all you know, sunshine and lollipops. <laughs> it's, it, there's a lot of crazy dark shit going on beneath the surface. What do you think of Shadow of a Doubt? I'm- well, I don't have as strong of a response to this one as I do to some of the other ones. And I don't know I don't know why. And I think I've just had trouble watching it, and I think that might be part of it. Um, Does it make you feel uneasy? No, I mean, I've tried to watch it several times and end up falling asleep for some reason. And oh, that I- can happen. <laughs> yeah. This has happened on more than one occasion. Um, but I really, I do like the idea of it. Um, I think the parallels between Charlie, the the girl, and Charlie, the uncle, the uncle are very interesting. Yeah. Um, it gets really creepy. Yeah. Like incestuous at one point. Like, just... He gets, you know, he, he, like the way he touches her hand, and I mean, I, I was like, "Damn, this is just icky." <laughs> it is icky, <laughs> yeah. But you know, and, and seeing a movie like that in this time period really is a fascinating experience. It's also like um, when I saw Bigger Than Life with James Mason. It's this Nicholas Ray movie about addiction, and seeing, you know, something. That, 
that captures pill addiction um, in that era is really fascinating. <laughs> now that's what that's what editing is all about. <laughs> that's that um, rope bone that he had, except it came off the rope, so now it's just a bone. Yeah. Maybe you can just go sleep now. I think he ate all of his. <laughs> Or play with a quiet toy. Are you looking for a quiet toy? Oh, you want to lick, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you were looking for something in my hand. He was hoping I had something. Um, okay. Um, another example of feeling uneasy but fascinated by the fact that something like this can happen in an older film was when I saw Billy Wilder's The Apartment and there's a scene of the doctor just slapping Shirley MacLaine. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, because she's, you know, overdosed and he's trying to keep her awake. I was so taken aback by that. And there are moments in Shadow of a Doubt where I'm really taken aback like, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's exactly like that. Yeah. I start barking. I know. It's a, it can be an upsetting experience to watch Shadow without Theo. You know, it totally can be. But, um, yeah, so, you know, the, the idea of a man not being what he appears to be is very prevalent in Hitchcock's work. Um, here, well, you I know, think, isn't, there's um, always a theme of people seeming guilty and then turning out to be innocent and this is True. i think one of the only ones where he actually is exact like what you suspect or is yeah i wonder if that's hmm. there's probably other examples but this is one of the ones that stands out to me as being like oh he's um he actually is as bad as as he appears to be yeah no um you know the girl charlie was right <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it employs these really fascinating undertones that suggest, like, Uncle Charlie, you know, is a perv or a vampire or just a complete hate monger. And, hate, you know, like, that speech he gives about uh, fat, greedy women mm-hmm. is just, yeah, I know, it's really upsetting. I, I, I can't get over hearing something like that. Um, so two things kind of keep it from being a full-blown masterpiece. There are people who really love Shadow of a Doubt. Um, I really like it. I don't absolutely love it. Hume Cronin and uh, Charlie's father played these really silly games about how they would murder each other. I find it really kind of jarring. I mean, they're just, again, I, I use this word a lot, but it's sort of shoehorned in there um, kind of haphazardly, in my opinion. I, I mean, it, it's more of Hitchcock's humor mm-hmm. to just sort of offset the tension that's taking place with, you know, Uncle Charlie and everything. But it, it just pops up, like, like two or three times that I, I'm not really into it. It just sort of sticks out for me. And there's a jarring cut that seems just like a huge leap. I mentioned earlier with, um, you know, Charlie going on a date with one of the detectives. And... There's a like a quick little montage where it's all fun and games. And they have balloons and they're enjoying each other's company. And then all of a sudden it dissolves really fast. And suddenly she goes, 
what? My uncle might be a murderer. And it's just kind of really cheesy to me. Um, you know, I just, I, 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 again, it could be um, a part of the period, but at the same time, nothing like that is in this film, where it's just kind of really, you go from one extreme to another. Mm-hmm. in terms of tone where it's like they're on a date they're having a great time and all of a sudden we don't even hear the detective suggest to her like you know your uh, your uncle might be a murderer it's more of like the dissolve cuts to her reaction going what my uncle might be a murderer <laughs> it's just weird and cheesy and strange to me and it's not something that I you know can cite other examples of in Hitchcock's movies where there's a cut that's like really strange. Well, there is, there is that cut at the end of North by Northwest that I've always oh, thought yeah, is pretty. That's right. No, good call. You're um, right. That's kind of silly. Yeah, and I've never <laughs> been sure what to make of that. Really. Yeah. I kind of like it. I think maybe it's just because North by Northwest to me is very light on its feet and more of like an escapist kind of Hollywood spy caper, like a James Bond kind of a thing to where I'm very forgiving about when it does something like that, whereas Shadow of a Doubt, the tone is very kind of dark and serious for the most part, um, other than the two examples. Maybe that's just like the the, ex- the humor in this doesn't work for me as well, you know, as it does for many people who love this movie. I, I mean, normally I like it. Obviously I love it in 39 Steps and Lady Vanishes, but here it sort of, it sticks out for me. But um, I think Teresa Wright's portrayal of Charlie is really great. She is kind of one of the, another early example of kind of like a feminist hero who in the end sort of takes charge and realizes that she doesn't need Uncle Charlie Mm -hmm. and that she actually is the cause of his demise, again, off a train. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, she's, she's becomes very independent, you know, and but she still has that attraction to the detective. Like, there's always something like that in these movies where I'm just like, why does she have to be attracted to the detective? Why does she have to go on a date with him? It's kind of unnecessary to me. I mean, I guess it's just to create more tension, but it doesn't work, in yeah. my opinion. Um, but yeah, I mean, this this movie's held in very high regard for a reason. I think thematically it's very strong um, in his filmography, for sure. And it has great moments. Joseph Cotton is also great. Yeah. He is he is, he is definitely a highlight. Um, and the monologue given at the dinner table, like I, I sent you that, and I, I'm just like, it's so disgusting. But it's also a really interesting example of Hitchcock using his camera to gradually push in on him as he's giving this speech. And then Joseph Cotton literally turns and looks into the camera as he gives the final line of that speech, which is really something special. It's like, you're looking right at this evil man, directly. Mm-hmm. And you just, you just, you don't want to be that close. Right. Like, he makes you feel uncomfortable um, in ways that very few directors, especially of that era, could do. And um, the next one we're going to go towards is Notorious, which, you know, for years... I've heard nothing but amazing things about it, and I've just watched it for the first time. Which is crazy, because it's... I love Cary Grant. I love Ingrid Bergman. Um, and I think this is Truffaut's favorite Hitchcock movie. And I think Ebert was torn 
when he gave his uh, top ten favorite films between this and Vertigo, as which mm. he would include on his top ten favorite movies of all time list. Um, I really enjoyed this movie quite a bit. I love Ingrid Bergman in almost anything, and this one especially. Yeah. Yeah, they, there's a lot of great performances in this movie. Um, and I also... One of the themes I love in Hitchcock that I already talked about is, like, this theme of performing or of being um, someone you're not, through, like, for an extended period of time. Like, yeah. Um, and also... I was actually just watching this scene where um, Cary Grant and her um, are actually in love, but then they also um, are pretending to have had an affair um, to throw off Claude Rain's character as he catches them exploring his his wine cellar. The best moment in the film. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and it's also, it's like a really beautiful love story also, aside from, I think I like Hitchcock the most when he, when uh, you just get to experience um, these like thrilling moments, like the deep romance in this movie, that long extended kiss scene that um, thwarts the production code is also (laughs) really cool. Yeah. No, absolutely. I um, the strength of this movie is the relationship between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, to where again, like the whole um, the 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 grains of not sand. It might have been sand, but like there's another MacGuffin. There's mm-hmm. another thing like oh, we're we're looking for something in his wine cellar. What is it, and what can it be, and what does it mean? And apparently, it's just like um, like uh, some sort of um, chemical that they use to make atomic weapons. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> Who cares what Claude Rains is up to, really? Um, you know, it's something I, I don't know if we brought up earlier on because it hasn't come up yet, but this could be the first example, at least in the films that we're talking about, of uh, of a codependent relationship with a mother figure that Claude Rains kind of has. It's more in the That's background right. here. Yeah. You know, it's not prevalent, but it's there in that like, you know, Claude Rains is like, Mom, give me the damn key! You know, and just... <laughs> and she's very distrustful of yeah. Ingrid Bergman's character from the beginning. Right. I mean, anyone who watches a bunch of Hitchcock movies automatically knows that he he must have had a complicated relationship with his mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I know. It's, it's not easy to, you know, uh, assess family dynamics and sort of come to conclusions. But... You know, we'll get to a certain childhood trauma that he had when we talk about the wrong man that I think is really interesting to bring up. Oh, I don't think I know about this. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, having a bachelor's in psych kind of, I'm primed to like look for these things mm-hmm. where I'm just like, hmm, what, what, what could that possibly mean? Yeah? You want to play a little bit? I know. You're like, oh, stop talking about that. That goofy director. Theo the puppy needed some peanut butter and a raw bone. And your hosts needed to get another beer. But don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
Do you prefer Alfred Hitchcock or the Biggie biopic? <laughs> That's the ultimate question here. Um, I haven't seen the Biggie biopic, okay. but That's okay. I know from Googling. <laughs> Theo's upset that you haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Mm. If you don't put Hitchcock as a search term, Biggie always comes up. Of course. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I think this is a very straightforward, simple love story that is very effective. Like, you become very emotionally invested in these two people and what happens to where when Ingrid Bergman is slowly being poisoned, I actually feel a lot for her character. You know, it's not just like, um, you know, a, a movie character on screen. I'm actually, I see her as a fully dimensional human being and feeling for her plight. And, you know, <laughs> it's just one of those experiences where I'm like, I mean, there's not a whole lot of cinematic flourishes in the way that we would come to expect from Hitchcock. It's just a really well-told story about spies and intrigue and people falling in love when maybe they shouldn't fall in love and uh, you know, having to um, be somebody that they're not, even when they're asked to be, and sort of having to compromise a lot of the time. Um, there is that um, one crane shot that's pretty oh. celebrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but other than that, yeah, you're right. It's not, like, full of... <laughs> yeah, I mean, when she's being poisoned, you see, like, her po- point of view, which is very dizzying. Um, you know, and we get that later in Vertigo very effectively, too. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's not something, like, I, I feel like you can talk a long stretch of time about other than like what can you say about the performances um well I I always like Cary Grant um oh yeah and I think I love Hitchcock's movies with Cary Grant um and this one isn't quite as exciting I think as some of his other performances um but it's very consistent yeah and that's what I like about it yeah, and I think that's what Hitchcock liked about it, too. Yeah. I, I, I was reading about their working relationship, um, and I think what he really liked about Cary Grant is that he was, like, a very consistent performer and right. just, like, a gentleman um, on set. But I also think they bring out certain things in each other. Um, I think... Well, I think um, Cary Grant is, like, this very charming performer and Hitchcock um brings that out a lot but also in certain circumstances can harden him up a little bit in Mm -hmm. ways that I think are interesting not so much in this movie but I think suspicion is mainly the one where that happens if yeah yeah definitely yeah I I think the the whole wine cellar sequence is really suspenseful in that, you know, you're wondering when Claude Rains is going to show up and at what moment. And then, of course, the build-up to that and the payoff is just wonderful. Yeah. So. Oh, and speaking of performances, Claude Rains' performance actually is very memorable in this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Incredible final moment when you realize what's going to happen to him. Yeah, and it's um, pretty disturbing for me. Um like it's not like I c- you care about this character, but in 
in certain ways, you do you like empathize with him? Yeah, um, because in the end, he's or the reason he ends up poisoning Ingrid Bergman's character is because he's in trouble. Like he yeah. needs he needs a way out of the situation he's found himself in, and he was really in love with her too. Because how sure. can you not be in love with Ingrid Bergman? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I also I didn't I didn't necessarily see him as a mommy boy schlub. But in certain instances, I was like, eh, you know, you're going to choose sides. You're going to choose Cary Grant, and you want to see them end up together. And you you, you know that they will. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, it's hard not to feel sorry for him when you know that he's probably going to be executed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at the very end for, you know, essentially just making a bad choice. Um, but, yeah, no, it's, it's a really just well written, well-acted, and very simple story from Hitchcock here that is renowned for, you know, for its simplicity, I think. And I certainly will watch it again and again as, as the years go by, because there are many pleasures here, and many memorable moments, and great dialogue. You know, change is fun for a while, and, you know, there's that's the, that's the best part about this era. So many great dialogue exchanges. Right. It's hard to even keep up with them all in His Girl Friday. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I think the production code was useful in that way, because I think a lot of the sexual tension comes from the dialogue mm-hmm. um, rather than, like, actual bedroom scenes. Yeah. So I think a lot of the, the actresses really shine in this period as a result, and I think Ingrid Bergman is one of those, because she's really, she's a really sensual performer. Um, and... She does it all like within the Hayes code, within the parameters of yeah. that. But there's just something about close-ups on her face. I I'm just like kind of obsessed with Ingrid Bergman. The camera loves her. Yeah. She's so photogenic and just there's like a glow to her. It's easy to see why Hitchcock became infatuated. Right. And uh, you know, I mean it's easy to I can I can see like again sort of the, the, the codependent relationship forming with a director and an actor and I think that dynamic is 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 present in a lot of Hitchcock movies where it's just kind of like I don't wanna become obsessed or I don't wanna become so attached to this thing or this person but I can't help myself. I'm magnetized, I'm just drawn into this world or to the, these feelings that I have, you know? So I think that's, that's, that's true here. Obviously, logically, emotion overrides logic with the relationship. Or it's like, they probably shouldn't fall in love, but they can't help it. Mm-hmm. And here, even if it happens quickly, you know, like, they, they pretty much go on assignment, and they have some drinks, and then they kiss on, you know, like a mountainside or something. Yeah. I totally buy it. A hundred percent. I don't feel like it's forced or just thrown in there. <laughs> I actually, I really love the opening scene too. Maybe it's not the opening, but it's early on um, when Ingrid Bergman is just having a party. Sorry, I keep on referring to the, the actors' names instead of the character, yeah, but it's no, easier it's for me to remember, remember. All the characters' names. I understand. Um, I do that all the time. Um, but yeah, her character is a. Uh, 
throwing a party and she's like already drunk and I think the first image we see of Cary Grant is actually the back of his head he's just kind of like this yeah, no, entity call, sitting right. there um, it, that's a, a great example of incredible lighting where it's just like he's bathed in darkness and you have no idea who he is and he hasn't said a word mm-hmm. that's uh, a yeah that's a great character introduction yeah um, and then immediately from there they've got this uh, this attraction that's mm-hmm. pretty obvious, and uh, oh, and she takes some like drunk driving, like it's <laughs> really <Yeah>. dangerous. <laughs> and then of course, Cary Grant goes drunk driving in North by Northwest. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I'd... boy oh boy, that's uh, I can't get enough of both of those actors myself. I can watch them in anything. Yeah, me too. So I. I like that Cary Grant and Hitchcock work together a lot. So we can move on to a movie that I got acquainted with through a ridiculous comedy called Throw Mama from the Train. Have you ever seen Throw Mama from the Train with Danny DeVito and Billy Crystal? <laughs> no, but that sounds like something that I would enjoy. You probably would because you're a Hitchcock fan. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, I don't know if it's a satire or parody per se, but the um, main character in Throw Mama from the Train goes to see strangers on a train and gets an idea of how to get rid of his mother based on um. watching a movie. So it's kind of an interesting idea for a dark comedy that is slapsticky in some parts, but it's really also kind of a, a good portrayal of a lost soul who is very impressionable to where he watches a movie and goes, Oh! That looks like a good idea. Why don't I try that in real life and see what happens? So I like that idea in the in the movie, but I had not seen Strangers on a Train. I saw Throw Mama from the Train first, but he goes to the movies, watches Strangers on a Train, and so maybe a few months later, I went to the video store and rented this thread of... Well, probably when I was like, I don't know, 12 or 13. Um, yeah, I was like, you went to a video store. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? They still exist. Yeah. Just, you know, my uh, former co-host, Patrick, he works at Specialty Video in Andersonville, <laughs> which, um, you know, pr- at this point should probably just be a sponsor of the show. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I mentioned earlier, like, the uh, very memorable scene at the tennis match that I adore. Um, but, you know, Bruno, um, no, Robert Walker as Bruno. What a performance. Um, very Kevin Spacey. Um, but I even think a little better. I mean, I, I like Kevin Spacey, but I just think there's there's layers to this character. Um, and, you know, what's interesting, too, is I found out that, you know, Robert Walker, he was just 31 when he died because he had a mental illness. Um, yeah, I mean, after this movie's re- released, he died like eight months later. Oh, wow. Which is terrible to find out but I was just like because I was curious about this actor because he's so strong in this movie um, you know because the other guy whose name escapes me in this um, I mean he plays guy in this movie but he went on to uh, star in rope in rope yeah yeah so uh, this relationship that de- well this sort of pseudo relationship that develops between the two of them based on their meeting on a train um is something really special in Hitchcock's filmography, just how their dynamic formulates, I think. Um, 
like how one character sees something from one perspective and the other thinks like, oh, he's just saying that in jest. It's no big deal. It's mm-hmm. nothing. I'm not going to take it seriously or anything. Um, but yeah, and and you know the, the the murder of of the wife is really well done. Um, I'm a sucker for weird point of view shots or weird reflective shots. So the the shot of the glasses, um, right? You know, is really cool. I really like that little touch. I mean, that's the thing is like as I'm watching this movie, there's like little touches throughout that I really appreciate and respect even more as time goes on. Yeah, that whole sequence is really memorable. Yeah. Or probably probably the standout part of the movie to me. Um, that carnival murder sequence. Oh yeah. Um, where they start out in the tunnel of love. Um The shadow. Yeah. Oh, him. that's right. Yeah, the shadow that just sort of overtakes the yeah. two of them in the boat. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's really good. I remember I saw that in a college class, and like I totally didn't remember what movie it came from, but um, I couldn't get that whole scene out of my mind. Yeah. So I was really glad when I discovered it again, and I and like was able to figure out where it came from. Yeah, and just there's just something about that woman too. She's very—I don't know how to describe her exactly, but. She almost has this flirtation with him. Mm-hmm. Um, she feels his eyes on her, and she's like, "Oh, yeah. like what's up with this guy?" Um, and then she's, she's like, "Very welcoming." It yeah, too. she's very aware that he's following her, and I think, um, and it's very, very scary when it turns out that uh, he's there for a very specific reason, mm-hmm. a very calculated reason. Yeah. And maybe maybe that's what um, makes the glasses shot so powerful, or in a way like she misread or miss saw um, exa- like what was yeah. happening to her. No, that's a good way to look at it. No pun intended with looking. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. No, I mean that's it. I I haven't thought of like trying to. I'm sure it's there, but just the idea of people being blind to what really is in front of them. Mm-hmm. That's another probably p- prevalent theme throughout Hitchcock's films, like not knowing what's right there, uh, not knowing the person that you've known for all your life, or you know, that's that's yeah, that's a really good um, take on the glasses because like some people can just look at that and go, oh, that's a showy shot, look at that, you know, but because you know, like a, a show like Breaking Bad just became inundated with clever point of view shots of like a pickaxe or a suitcase or just they would put the camera on something constantly after a while uh, isn't there a fly too yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um so like i i like those things despite the fact that they become goofy but you know here it it serves the purpose of the story and highlights the themes and the ideas going on too which is what's really important when you're going to throw in a shot like that. It's just not to be, like, clever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, but I also just love the stalking of um, of Bruno. And just, like, he's almost ubiquitous at one point. when it's a, It really is an anxiety-inducing film, knowing, like, somebody's out there and just, you know, stalking you. Yeah. And so, like, you know, when you see him at a distance, that's just as scary as seeing him up close right outside your building. Um, 
but yeah, and and then this it's it's also interesting with the relationship Bruno has with his mother, um, like because in the first scene that she's in, I think she's like giving him a manicure or something. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and again, there, there's like there could be an Oedipus kind of insinuation going on because he's I don't know if he's attracted to his mother per se, but. He has hatred for his father, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, I mean, people want to pick, you know, hone in on the possibility of Bruno being attracted to Guy. and Or, or sort of like the Fight Club kind of take on the movie. Not necessarily like they're, one doesn't exist, but they're just... Uh, one represents one side of the right. personality and another... Um, you know, guy, uh, like Bruno is guy's repressed id mm-hmm. of sorts, who can you know go out and enact murder, um, do all the crazy impulses that he's too afraid to do. So I mean, there's like a lot of interesting takes to this movie. But on top of that, it's just you know the pacing's great. It's really fun despite its creepiness and anxiety. Um, I just I love the carousel craziness right. that goes on oh, right, once yeah. the final con- confrontation happens and the final moment involving the lighter is just real because you know he's he's still trying to pull off this role uh, and you know trying to convince the cops even as he's dying in his final moments he's trying to convince the cops that nope guy killed his wife uh, if you go over you know I have proof and just like that whole it's like the best way to end the movie, too, with the lighter and then just like, okay, I didn't do it. The end. <laughs> you know. So I mean, it's just it's another example of Hitchcock's at his, you know, working on um, all cylinders, just like firing on all cylinders is the expression. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I just it's another great film. What can you say? Mm-hmm. There's this other great moment that I keep thinking about. Um, where I think they're at a party and all right. Well, what is his name though? I get the two the names of the two guys mixed up. Well, guy is the guy, yeah. and Bruno's the murderer. <laughs> Bruno, yeah. Um, Bruno is having this conversation with this old woman um, about um, it is like about how to kill someone or something or like how would you mm. kill someone. Um, and yeah. he starts strangling her, um, but then he's actually looking at this other girl, um, and she, <laughs> she's like, "Oh, he was strangling me! Like he was str- he was um, strangling this other woman, but he was looking at me! Like he was actually strangling me!" Um, <laughs> and there's something very cinematic about that to yeah. me. Um, it just makes me think of a lot of Hitchcock's movies sort of how like in psycho you watch, um, her undressing, um, through Anthony Perkins eye. And it's just like all about editing and like, um, we get implicated sort of viewers get implicated in all of this action. Um, and that seemed like an early moment of that to me. Um, yeah, no, that's a good call. I actually think that the, um, I think it's the sister is actually played by, I want to say it's Alfred Hitchcock's daughter, if I'm not mistaken. 
I think, yeah, I think that sounds right. Yeah. It's at Patricia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, there's just, there's really interesting touches like that where you, you recognize, oh, this, this weird character that showed popped up into our lives here. There's something off about him and mm-hmm. like something like that, you know, it, it clues into like, not everybody, not every character is oblivious. They can, like, I think Hitchcock really respects his characters through and through. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't portray them as ciphers. He doesn't portray them as these, you know, vacant nobodies that, you know, can't recognize signs and certain, um, body language. So I think that's, that's a really good example of that. And, a character, you know, somebody is a side character that normally you would dismiss, but also having, you know, um, fully realized that the person that they're interacting with is not all, all there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's strangers on a train. is something, uh, I think it's something that kind of like haunts me, even though it's not like a, a horror movie or, uh, it's just eerie. It, yeah. Well, the whole idea of that, is very, very eerie. <laughs> As is the wrong man when we get to it. Like yeah. just, um, I mean, the next one is still probably my favorite Hitchcock film, and it's the one that you saw first, and it's Rear Window. I think it just encapsulates everything I love. Um, you got Jimmy Stewart, you got Grace Kelly, you got voyeurism, you got um, a reliance on really impeccable sound design when you're following the different apartments and sort of getting to know complete strangers, like little moments from these complete strangers. Uh, and there's just, again, a really great murder mystery that manages to work. Even if you've seen the movie a dozen times, you're still caught up. Right. I actually, I feel like it gets more disturbing every time I see it. Yeah. I'm not sure how that works, but it does. Well, I think I think as we get older, our empathy um, gets higher to some degree. To where we we watch a movie, and we're able to put ourselves even more strongly into the characters' shoes, and like you, you you're able to like just think of how you would be in that situation, and it affects you more. And you also have a lot more compassion for a character's plight. I think. Right. Yeah. But you know, I. I, I, you know, I'm, we've been mentioning just like how Hitchcock sort of made a career out of indulging voyeuristic tendencies, and I think he understood it better than any filmmaker. That you you don't need to exploit them; you just sort of need to casually invite the audience member to get involved. Like you're playing the detective, you're watching what Jimmy Stewart is watching, and you're looking for hints and signs. When you're the camera is panning across those apartments, you're looking. You're trying to figure out the mystery. You're trying to you're trying to listen. I, that's why I love this movie so much. Is like it involves all the senses. You have to. I mean, that's the case for any movie. I shouldn't say that's kind of silly, but I just feel like I'm on high alert throughout the entire movie. I'm fully engaged. I'm really into the story. I respect it as a film and what it means and the visual language of it. Um, yeah, I just I like the sense of geography. Like, you actually know where everything is at all times. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, I think it's really interesting to me because it's one of his like restricted sets, or yeah. it's, it all takes place in this very small environment, but it also doesn't feel that way somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you really don't. It's not. It doesn't like have a claustrophobic feel to, to it at all. Right. Um, and I I like. There's this. Um, I mean, it is very voyeuristic, um, and I like how you really don't ever get to get close to the people he's watching. So there's this sort of restriction, like you know he's projecting onto them a lot of this stuff yeah. because he's not close enough to actually have any idea. Um, like he doesn't. I mean, there's no way to know. We can all assume that Miss Lonely Hearts, I guess. Um, is like looking for for a man, but there's also a sense that you don't know her at all because mm-hmm. she's very far away. Um, there is no close-ups on her. There's no close-ups on most of them, um, except for Thornwald when he finally does cross over. Right. But I think that that tension is very interesting. Just that he his like desire to know about them or to like to make some kind of narrative out of it and not being able to actually know. Yeah, it's it's interesting how he keeps you at a distance, but keeps you involved at the same time. You know, and you know you're looking at everything almost through point of view. But Hitchcock knows how to separate things, like you mentioned too, at the same time. Um, and the majority of the sound too is uh, diegetic, as opposed to non-diegetic. It's also. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, I really find myself more attuned, maybe it's because of, like, really getting into audio production and and being a musician, is that I, I start to notice sound design more and more as I've gotten older. Like, my, my hearing must be just... Maybe it's because I hang around so many cats. <laughs> but I just... Uh, I, I have a tendency to, like, hear things a little bit more strongly as time goes on. But um, I, I became hyper-aware of when Hitchcock uses score or doesn't use score or in something like the birds where he decides to make the the sound effects of the birds essentially take place or i mean take the take the place of like the strings in psycho right you know? so i mean it's really interesting how he contrasts that yeah i think um most people talk about how hitchcock is a really visual director and he is but i think he understands sound really well yeah um especially with his collaborations with Bernard Herrmann. I think every one of those scores really brings out something unique in the film. Mm-hmm. And they're very, like, very well thought out. Yeah, Vertigo especially. That's, yeah. That's a special score. I can't get that out of my head sometimes. It's, you know, like... I'm If, if, if I was at an airport and I was seeing couples kiss each other goodbye all the time, I'd just hear the swelling of screams... <laughs> At all times, it's just like it's a perfect sort of romantic sound. <laughs> I don't have no other way to put it, but just like that's, you know, it's we'll get to Vertigo, but yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like the the opening scene here is one of my favorite. It's like you see the man shaving, you hear the sound from a radio commercial. It's just like uh, like this really wonderful, you know, amalgam of different things going on that you would see if we looked out you know, a window and, you know, we had a lot of apartments and we could look into their windows. It's, it just feels realistic enough to where something like this could happen if we, you know, broke our leg and was just spending our time looking out the window the entire time and we saw somebody 
you know, and we weren't sure if they were hurt or not, then, yeah, I mean, I'm able to place myself in Jimmy Stewart's uh, shoes very easily throughout this movie and sort of sympathize with his choices. Um, But yeah, it's just... I feel like he involves the viewer so effectively in this movie to where, you know, when the, the, the confrontation begins and all the all the shit goes down, you're just, like, on edge. Yeah. That's got to be one of the scariest things in all of cinema to me when Thornwald yeah. uh, meets his gaze. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's God, It's very yes. scary. Um, you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, because it's our gaze, too. I think right. that's why it's so scary. Or, like, what would happen if the characters in our movies suddenly realized we were watching them? Oh, that would be pretty terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> unless it's unless we're watching Purple Rose of Cairo. I haven't seen that one. Oh my gosh. That's that put that high on your list. I think you'd love it. Even if you're not like a diehard Woody Allen fan, you're if you love movies, I think you really appreciate Purple Rose of Cairo. It's it's almost like the it's almost like Pleasantville or I'm trying to think of other examples, but it's just, you know, a character in a movie coming to life. Mm-hmm. And what would that be like if you could interact with a movie character in real life? Oh, well, I have seen um, The Last Action Hero again with Arnold well, yeah. Schwarzenegger. That's, so. that's, yeah, that's similar, too. <laughs> but, yeah, Purple Rose of Cairo is kind of like the uh, the Woody Allen version of Last Action Hero. But it's a lot sweeter. It's probably better. Yeah. <laughs> no, it definitely is better. It's a lot shorter. It's like 80 minutes long. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I just... Rear Window is a special film in cinema history. And anytime I watch it, I'm just kind of like, this is... I hate using the expression they don't make them like they used to, but it's it's pretty true. You know? And I've become less and less interested in remakes and sequels, and even mashups to some degree, or even films that don't acknowledge, or they acknowledge too blatantly, <laughs> with something like Disturbia, which was just a movie that Okay, Shia LaBeouf is on house arrest. He looks out his window, and his neighbor may or may not have killed somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, why do I have to sit through this scenario again, but almost like a lesser version of it? And with an actor like Shia LaBeouf, who is no Jimmy Stewart. No, not at all. <laughs> so I'm, I, I just, I, I think that you can't really imitate Hitchcock. I mean, De Palma really wanted to. And he came close, and he has sequences that I adore, because his camera work is so playful and fun, and he loves to use split screen and do all these crazy things that most filmmakers wouldn't dare to try. But there is only one Hitchcock, Mm -hmm. and it's the Hitchcock that made Rear Window that I adore and appreciate more than any other one. Um, But there are certainly highlights to come here. We got uh, a few more to go. I love Jimmy Stewart. In Hitchcock movies, because yeah, um, he's this sort of like affable character um, in in his other movies, or like in in other by other directors, but Frank Hitch- Capra, yeah, Capra and yeah. Hitchcock, or um, who or Cukor, um, Philadelphia Story. Oh I right, 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 yeah. Right. Um, but in Hitchcock movies, he's always like there's this like really creepy gross edge to him that you don't see 
I think in his other performances and I really enjoy that. <laughs> yeah. No, for sure. Um, before we get to Vertigo, we gotta get to the wrong man. Okay. Because the reason why it's interesting is because it's based on a true story. And Hitchcock mm-hmm. himself, at the very beginning, tells you so. Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, and I just... It's not a movie where, you know, like, the, the mystery element or, you know, the master suspense sort of moniker he has comes into play. There's little suspense, but it's really more based in truth and just um, dealing with character conflict internal and external with the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, you can be a victim of random chance or circumstance accused of a crime you didn't commit because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he becomes the wrong man. Yeah. And uh, Henry Fonda, what can you say? He's another great actor. Like it, it's, more, it's, it's, it's more of a reserved performance. Like There's not a lot of histrionics or you know, him freaking out a whole lot. Even when he's caught, he's sort of just like internalizing all his anger and frustrations for the most part. But as I uh, messaged to you after I watched it, I was really impressed with Vera Miles, who um, I guess, you know, she also um, does a stellar job in one of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes where she is traumatized and I can't remember the name of it, but it's supposed to be like one of the best episodes of the series. And I think he directed her again and put her through the ringer Mm. emotionally. So, you know, I'm willing to watch that just based on the strength of her performance in this film. Um, What I love about this movie is very much like Robert Brisson's pickpocket, the attention to detail the choices oh, that's to That's a good focus. comparison. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. And I just I I love his just focusing on like handcuffs, the reflection of cell bars, um like a weird sort of camera jerking at one point where he is, you know, incarcerated Right. And, yeah. The the camera just sort of spins around his yeah. face. Yeah, that whole thing is just <laughs> That's something special. That like that's you know in the midst of a rather not necessarily stilted, but just kind of a leisurely paced film where it really is just a character study of somebody going through some really difficult stuff and being put through the ringer. Suddenly, the camera really is reflecting his mentality at that point, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, just like I said, the attention to detail in this is really exquisite and really well done. Um, and Vera Miles's transformation to you know like a, a relatively stable housewife, and then having a, a nervous breakdown as a result of what her husband is going through, is pretty remarkable in this. Then and the staging of their confrontation, the the choices of Hitchcock to make one stand taller at one point or one sitting at, uh, you know, lowering the angle at one point. And just like the compositions here are really strong, even if it's not built around 
suspense and tension or these incredibly elaborate set pieces. So yeah. I just I became really engrossed in this movie. Yeah, I think this movie is really amazing, and I don't think it's one that if you're like a casual Hitchcock watcher, you probably haven't seen it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's really masterful, um, and I think it brings out a lot of the themes that he he talks about throughout his film his his films um like mistaken identity um this is for me it's like uh north by northwest without any of the the mirth <laughs> or mm-hmm. it's yeah. just like i guess if um if north by northwest really happened you would get um something closer to yeah to this movie Being filtered through the system like yeah this. where it's um you're not going on the run. You're just, um, yeah, you're in conflict with this system that you can't get out of. And the system is really um, the like an oppressive force in this movie. That's yeah, the villain. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the only real villain. Because even when, when they catch the man that he's actually, that is actually committing these thefts, um, there's this, this sense that it's really a guy not much different from him yeah. except cuz he's like oh don't don't take me i have kids i'm like right he you just is trying to look sad yeah <laughs> um but yeah it's it's like a very very scary movie in a way just and very frustrating for me watching it um because you can you can really feel this happening to yourself, you can you can see yourself getting caught in this situation. Oh yeah, um, and there's all these systems in place that you just can't get around. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this like intense web. I think, um, I think it is actually one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. It's the more we talk about it, the more <laughs> like yeah, I'm, it's one that I think about more mm-hmm. in light of stuff like making a murderer the Netflix show, and obviously the West Memphis 3 case of wrongly incarcerated teenagers, practically. Uh, I know, it really upsets you too, doesn't it? I, I can't stand it when that happens. Wrong, wrongful incarcerations. Innocent people certainly makes Theo angry. Theo, stop it. Yeah, it is... Um and to all those corrupt cops out there, stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a very interesting film to watch now in light of all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think for fans of Making a Murder, because everybody's watching that or has watched it recently, you should go back and watch The Wrong Man, because you will be affected by it. Yeah. But the fact that it's based on a true story, too, I think um, would give you impetus to get involved and have strong empathy for, for, for Henry Fonda. It just shows the fallibility of the system and even eyewitness identification. Yeah, that is nuts. I'm, I have a hard time understanding, like, since it is based on a true story, I'm the whole time. I'm like, how is this permissible? Like all of this eyewitness testimony or, um, how reliable. (laughs) Yeah. It's very unreliable, but Memory um, is unreliable. And yeah, it's that's the thing. Is like even court cases when people are recounting certain facts and things. That how sure are you? 
You know, and that's why, like, how many wrongly, um, you know, how many innocent people are incarcerated? We don't know. I just, it's one of those movies where I really do get caught up. Um, And yet it's very simple, and it's very simply told, and there's not a lot of flash to it. But, again, he he shows what he, he can do with a very simple story about some, you know, he loved to put like everyday, you know, regular Joes in these crazy situations, mm-hmm. you know, almost like a fishbowl kind of approach where it's just like, I just want to watch a character go through something and see how he processes it. And, you know, I think in a way that makes him also kind of a, an interesting, he would be, he would have been a very interesting therapist, probably with his sense of humor, it wouldn't have worked out. But, <laughs> I just think like he does have a fascination with human behavior mm-hmm. and how people adapt and try to remain resilient under these incredible circumstances. Um, and Harry Fonda is just really good at internalizing his emotions throughout all of this. Yeah, he's got this like I well, we were talking about Hitchcock and actors earlier, and I think Hitchcock uses actors really well, and I think he sees something in Henry Fonda. Henry Fonda's got this just, like, beautiful... <laughs> yeah. Um, sort of... He can really make his expression very blank. Right. Um, which is great in this movie, because at a certain point, even though you're like, oh, he's not guilty, you're like, but wait, like, is he? Mm-hmm. Um, because you see the way that other people are looking at him. Yeah, and sort so of convinced. Yeah, and, like just sort of ascribe that onto his face or write that onto his face. I really like um, the scene where he is like recognized or misrecognized. And I think that scene is really amazing. Yeah. The focus on him reaching into his coat pocket. Yeah. From the, you know, the bank teller. Well, it's like a, not the bank teller, but an insurance uh, agent looking (laughs) at, you know, specific details again. Yeah, and her face behind this grate, um, the way, like, the grate sort of highlights um, sort of, like, the imperfections in her face, and there's this sort of way that she looks warped behind Mm -hmm. this grid, um, and her expression is, like, of horror, because she's, like, sure that she's seen this guy. Um, It's just a very memorable sequence to me. Um... And yeah, you sort of, you start seeing through her perspective him reaching into his shirt, and you're like, you know that she's seeing or imagining a gun. Yeah, and you see it too. It's like very, very good. <laughs> Just it's like very, very smart of Hitchcock too to establish some desperate need for money. Mm-hmm. With um, you know, his wife needs dental work, and he's not sure if they can afford it. So that sort of creates some ambiguities or a little little uncertainty of maybe he did rob some people because he needs money. Right. You know, so, I mean, it sort of makes sense. Maybe this this guy actually did it. So, I mean, he's really good at doing that. He's really good at sort of playing with your expectations. A yeah. Little bit. And I think, and then his wife, that sort of uncertainty is what, like, unhinges her. Yeah. She's like well, how do I know you're not guilty? Or just being so close to someone, I think, and not suddenly not being sure, um, I think is very, very unsettling experience. Yeah, it is for anybody. I think it's just, 
it automatically creates trauma. Like somebody you've been with for so long turns out to possibly not be the person that you thought they were. It's something that, you know, I wonder if Hitchcock himself experienced in any re- regard because it it does seem uh, like something that just keeps popping mm-hmm. up yeah. throughout where it feels personal. <laughs> yeah. Because she's like, oh, he's such a good man. And he's he always calls me before he comes home. If he's going to come home late, he's yeah. so reliable. And then she's just like suddenly unhinged. And very, that performance is also, like you were talking about, really, really great. Yeah, I love her in that role. It would be my top five performances in Hitchcock's movies. I, uh, I really responded to her, just like having this breakdown and feeling for her. Oh, yeah. Her. Oh, and that brings up another thing that I, I like in Hitchcock, in, in that um, there's this sort of... I feel like there's often a scientist or psychologist who tries to explain someone's condition. Ending of psycho. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But then viewers are like, well, like, it's so much more than that. Like, Mm -hmm. there's something much deeper going on here. And I think that's the case with her, too. Um, Where that there's this very clinical definition of what's happening. And then there's also something much more unsettling <laughs> yeah, that you can feel but can't necessarily describe. Something underneath the surface mm-hmm. and something that's hard to define and an emotion that's at odds with itself. Yeah. In a way. <laughs> that, I, I mean, I just, I always respond to that in movies in general where a character is just in constant conflict with what, they're used to or what they're feeling and it's 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 just it's just something that i think because most people can identify with a moment in time or a moment in their lives where they felt like oh everything was going great and then suddenly something crazy happened and now i don't know how to feel Mm -hmm. and so when that happens in a movie whether if it were if it's a subconscious thing or not you sort of tr- almost like time travel back to that feeling of when that happened to you in real life. So it makes it easier to process what a person is feeling, even if it's completely fictional. Mm-hmm. And I think that the reason why The Wrong Man stands out and why we talked about it is because it's not fiction. Yeah. Which is wild, <laughs> considering Hitchcock's work. Um, and the reason why he chose to tell this story is because it seems like it could be one of his movies mm-hmm. if it wasn't true. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it's a special film. And I think because we elaborated on that so much, we can we can skip over North by Northwest and bring it up for the sequel episode because I, I feel like we've touched upon a lot of the themes in our love of Cary Grant and just sort of the escapist fun. Yeah, it would just be me waxing poetic about Cary Grant yeah, <laughs> some more. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, but we, we we brought it up a few times here, and obviously we love it, and it's a great British spy caper that's very reminiscent of 39 Steps. But I think we have to, especially since we're getting psychological, um, let's get to Vertigo. Okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, I want you to sort of go... I want you to start on this one. You think you can handle it? Oh, man, I don't know. (laughs) 
you experienced this in 70 millimeter at the music box. I, oh, that's a good place to start, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to hear about what your initial reaction was walking out after that experience, or even during. Well, it was interesting. Um, seeing it in 70 millimeter completely, not completely, but changed my reaction to it a lot. Um, watching... <laughs> watching uh jimmy stewart's transformation into this like manipulative creepy dude (laughs) or creepy uh well whatever it's huge when you see it um on a big screen like that yeah um it's very palpable in a way that it hadn't been to me before he's just very grotesque and i don't know if that's um a universal experience but for me um it was pretty significant um and uh not like i hadn't like that's obviously a huge part of that movie um but there's something weirdly uh comical about it um uh, it was like the ending yeah there was some weird humor that i hadn't picked up on before um where there's something like as much as it's disturbing that he's remaking this woman in the image of a woman who's not real. Um, that's a very like disturbing thing, but there's also something, uh, darkly funny about it. (laughs) Like the sales lady saying, well, this gentleman surely knows what he wants. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, I'd never, never really picked up on that dark humor before. Um, and it was definitely interesting. And also like the crowd was interesting. Um, there was a lot of, of laughter, in places that I'd never expected to hear it. It happens so. with older films, I think. Yeah, that's probably true, too. But I really enjoyed watching it in that way with an audience, a totally packed audience. Um, it was, yeah, it was really interesting. Um, and another thing that was really great in 70mm is um, the opening sequence, uh, or the credit sequence, actually. Yeah. Um, with... <sighs> those geometric geometric Mm -hmm. patterns yeah it was just gorgeous um and really enveloping um and a great way to like sort of get into those themes of um just being off balance i guess or dizzy yeah dizzy (laughs) (laughs) um the rooftop chase is pretty special too that that was also gorgeous in 70 millimeter um you can really see the backdrop of San Francisco in a way that I'd never been able to see before. Um, and you can see all these features of it. You can see, I think you can see the Golden Gate Bridge and like, it's just beautiful. Um, but you get, yeah, you get a much better sense of place than I'd ever experienced before. So if you, if there's anyone out there that hasn't been to the 70 millimeter festival in Chicago, I would highly recommend it. I hope it happens every year. Yeah. Because it is an event and it's a special one. Um, I, I've, I've always loved 2001, but now I really, really love 2001 after seeing mm-hmm. it in 70 millimeter. Um, plus, you know, I, I mentioned this before. It's, you have to, you have to shut off your phones, and you have no distractions, no pets. It's just like, <laughs> it's it, you know, I think the experience of going to a movie, especially at a place like the Music Box, is always special. Mm-hmm. 
and I value it. I treasure it every single time. Uh, Vertigo is a tough movie for me to talk about because it's like, um, it really affects me emotionally. So I think I, I, I want that same transcendent feeling to be universal, but you know, it's impossible. Everybody has different opinions and different tastes. And I realize that, uh, I think that what I get out of this movie is a man cannot process grief and loss. He, I mean, he, I don't know how close he was to the cop at the beginning, but watching somebody die and somebody that was trying to help you. Oh yeah. That's really intense. That's traumatizing. Mm-hmm. And then somebody you unexpectedly fall in love with dies very similarly. You're bound to have a nervous breakdown. You're bound to really lose touch with reality and shut down and need to be institutionalized for a while. I know that if I had if I had watched two people die like that, especially someone I was really, really close to it's impossible not to be unhinged. So in a way I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for Jimmy Stewart in this movie. Um, but at the same time, when he gets so manipulative and codependent and, and, um, controlling, I, I, I really have a visceral reaction to it and sort of, I want him to not do that as I'm watching. I'm like, don't, no, you don't you don't need to change her. Yeah. But that's like his instinct to do that in a way. It's like he has to do that to sort of come to terms with it's like his therapy. It's like his way of coming to terms with the grief and the loss is by confronting what he did or this person because they look so much alike. And then the reveal of the necklace comes and you're just like devastated because he's now realized what has happened. And now he has to <laughs> confront a whole other yeah. f- a new emotion that he's experiencing. So it's like an emotional roller coaster for me. I will admit that it's a slow burn. Like the the tailing of of her at the beginning, I can see people being restless with it. Yeah, I guess I can. But, but I also that part is beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so beautiful. Her uh, looking at the painting in the museum. Yeah, and the the close up on her hair in the bun that mirrors those geographic or not ge- yeah geometric, geometric. <laughs> formations in the beginning, the spiral image that recurs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all that stuff is really really beautiful. And then the the Bernard Herrmann score that sort of mirrors that like winding like da 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 da. Um, it's just really um, masterful. I think I've used that word more than once, but <laughs> it's it's kind of it's just a joy to watch because it's so beautifully put together. It works as a visual exercise. It works as almost like a psychoanalytic piece of eye candy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I also just think. It's a fascinating character study that is very reflective of Hitchcock himself, since almost every critic on record goes on to say that this is his most personal film. Mm-hmm. That he had 
that this is like reflecting how he was as a director with wanting to shape and mold actresses in a certain light. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, at one point he, he basically become, or, you know, Jimmy Stewart is the stand in for Hitchcock in a way. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's really interesting to watch as like a personal artistic statement from a guy like Hitchcock to say, I'm kind of putting my psyche on screen for everybody and making it, pretty grounded for the most part but also surreal in certain aspects obviously the dream sequence uh but like you know just him overcoming his um his phobia towards the end is really incredible the ending is still a head scratcher every time i watch it because it's such an odd feeling to leave to to leave that movie with him going through the same cycle. But at the same time, he's looking down, he's not having any vertigo. So in a way... Oh, that's... I never thought about that, actually. Yeah. So in a way, it's like, oh, his phobia is gone, but now he's gone through another loss. But now he's, like, irreparably... <laughs> yeah. ...fucked up, basically. I think so. Yeah. Which um, makes it an incredibly sad ending, but for, for some reason, he just, like, throws in the nun... Yeah, the nun is crazy, because I feel like in Hitchcock's mind, the nun, like, killed her, because the nun comes up the the stairs and scares her, and she's like, ah, and falls over the edge, and then the nun does, like... Did everybody laugh, or was there just, like, a mixed response to the end? I I was curious about how people... I don't remember people laughing at the end. Mm. Um, It's just a weird feeling. I, I don't laugh. I don't necessarily think it's funny. It's just a weird emotion that I can't describe when I at the end of that movie. Like I don't even know if it's satisfying. Like am, do I find that to be the the best ending for that movie? It's something that I've grappled with when I watch it. Like I never watch it and go, that is the perfect ending. Yeah, it's true. Um or yeah, it leaves you like wanting more. <laughs> it's like now that yeah, what becomes of his character after something like that? Yeah. But I think I can't imagine another ending for it that would make it stronger. Mm-hmm. So I think that is kind of where it has to end. And I think the way it leaves you hanging with like, well, what's going to happen to Jimmy Stewart now? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, that sort of unbalance. That's I think a like a powerful kind of feeling. Um, yeah, I almost feel a sense of vertigo at the end, a little bit. Yeah, like emotional vertigo. <laughs> yeah, there is like this number emotional vertigo because just as um, he's seeing this woman as she as he's seen this woman as she really is, like finally for the first time, he sees who she is. She's not um, the woman he was trailing. She's not the person she was pretending to be. Um, suddenly, he knows exactly what she is, and then she dies um yeah and then yeah i actually sort of like that i think that just as you sort of feel like this balance should be achieved it's thrown off forever (laughs) because she dies (laughs) well i think in a way that how do you recover from all the things that that guy has gone through it's so 
I mean, he's like a, but he's also, I don't know, emotionally stunted too because of what he's been through. And he's also like part anti-hero because it's hard to sympathize with him at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also like this beacon of pathos and just, you, you feel sad that he's gone through all this. Um, and he's got these unresolved issues and, you know, also Midge is there, like, Midge, yeah. you know, <laughs> pouring her heart out, trying to reconnect with him, and he's not responsive to that at all. It's, yeah, like, the re- the relationship dynamics in this movie are something to behold, I think. I love Midge, but I'm never sure what to make of her. Um, I love her up until she starts beating herself up about the painting that she did. Oh, yeah. When he leaves. Yeah. Well, I don't... That's another thing that's always confu- confused me is why why does she put herself in that painting? I mean, I know she wants to be like the object of his affection. Mm-hmm. But why is that the way she chooses to to manifest it or yeah, to communicate? It's an odd choice. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, why would she think that would woo him? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's bizarre. But yeah, I really like that character. Me too. It's one of Hitchcock's better female characters. Even if she is sort of relegated to the background, she makes she makes an impression. Mm-hmm. She definitely does. Um, and she's got this like like witty rep- repartee with him mm-hmm. in the beginning when she's sketching, and he, and he discovers this like futuristic bra <laughs> that she's designed. <laughs> um, and he's like, "What's this?" <laughs> and she's like, "Oh, I think you're old enough to know about these things now." <laughs> and it's like really funny. Yeah, they have good banter <laughs> yeah. together. Um, yeah, Bernard Herrmann's score is one of my favorites. Uh, the effect, the way he, you know, I don't even, it's one of those hard to describe camera movements and camera techniques with his point of view of when he gets vertigo. Oh, the, like the yeah. zoom. Uh, yeah. That's hard to describe. I know there's what probably is it? a t- it's a term zoom, for it. and then he pulls the camera back yeah. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I've always liked that, mm-hmm. <laughs> but here it's just it works beautifully. Um, you know, and, and Hitchcock himself had a lot of phobias. He had a lot of, you know, he he had a lot of anxiety issues and phobias and social hangups, and you wouldn't think so based on like his persona as being like kind of amicable and fun and playful. Uh, but what I forgot to mention with the wrong man is that as a child, his father sent him to the police station by himself with a note in his hand, gave it to the police and said, lock up my son for the night. So he knows what happens to naughty boys. Oh man. (laughs) And I don't know if he was like five or six, but that was Hitchcock's father's way of punishing him and so he got to spend the night in jail so they did it wow yeah <laughs> i can i mean i can see how that could haunt you as a child like yeah he's he never got like he is terrified of policemen yeah there's like this authority that sort of haunts you that like even if yeah. you don't so the wrong man feels almost as personal yeah as vertigo like the just the highlighting of it, the way Henry Fonda is placed behind bars and just like the lingering of that that seems like a feeling you know and I, I th- 
this, I, I remember like hearing this in a documentary that filmmakers are very lucky that they get to exercise their demons through movies. Mm-hmm. And Hitchcock probably did that constantly because otherwise they probably would be institutionalized or at least be a, you know, go through a lot more. But, um, you know, well, Hitchcock he maybe himself, should have been institutionalized. It's possible. You know, he still had a lot of issues. And he even said that, like, well, even if I've dealt with these, uh, you know, through cinema, I'm still dealing with them. They're still here. Yeah. It's not like they go away. Well, outside of the cinema, he did destroy Tippehedron's career. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, because she wouldn't do what he wanted, basically. Yeah. Yeah, no, he had, like, a, a Kubrick moment with Tippehedron, like, you know, trying to play mind games with yeah, her. Yeah, which is set. so sad, because I think she's so good. Mm-hmm. It's, like, just a tragedy to me that she wasn't able to flourish, because she's... I think one of my favorite heroines of his. Oh, yeah. Well, we have an interesting film that nobody's ever heard of to talk about next. <laughs> Psycho. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. What, yeah. what was your first experience seeing Psycho? Did we talk about that? We haven't talked about that. Um, well, I'm curious. I don't remember. Okay. Really. It was a long time ago. And for some, it didn't make a huge impact on me. Um, probably because it influenced so many of the '90s slasher movies that I had watched before it. You were desensitized. <laughs> yeah. Um, but now it makes a bigger impact on me every time I watch it. I mean, I love this movie. <laughs> I do too, in every way. Like I remember. Uh, I'll bring this up again with the birds, but much like Vertigo, I mean, maybe the majority of his films are slow burns to where he's just effectively building tension. Almost like Spielberg and Jaws, like, waiting to show you the shark. And, you know, getting to know all these characters for maybe close to an hour in some cases. You know, here, we're just getting to know uh, Marion and her, you know, the minutia of her day-to-day life. Uh, and then her impulse to steal money, and all of that is very... Because, you know, even a critic once said, well, when, the first time I saw it, I thought it was just, like, three great scenes and a lot of filler. Mm. But the filler is there to serve a purpose, to get you involved, and, you know, wonder what is specifically going on. And even if you've seen it before, I don't get restless watching everything that builds up to when she finally gets to the hotel. Yeah, it's like, every time I watch it, I feel like I forget that she's gonna die, like, halfway through. I know, right? It's, uh, it always, it's, like, always surprising somehow. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was probably a first in movie history to pretty much kill off your heroine. Yeah. Um, I think... I don't know. I don't remember if it was the reviews or the trailers that urged people not to talk about it yeah. after they'd seen it. Yeah, I think it was the trailer too. I mean, I think Hitchcock said it to to the audience pretty much in the trailer. Do not talk about this <laughs> to anybody. Yeah, but, uh, and he didn't live in the internet age, so yeah. maybe that was possible. <laughs> I think Hitchcock would have loved Twitter. <laughs> yeah, he would. Ha- he would have fun playing with his with his audiences to this day, and you know. I don't know if it was Ebert, but somebody said that Hitchcock played the audience like a piano. 
and Psycho is a clear case of that, where he's beautifully orchestrating tension. <laughs> Again, I probably use that word a lot, but you're on edge, and you know something's off with Norman. You're not quite sure what. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's. I'm trying to, like, filter this through a person who's never seen this before or, like, watching it for the first time. But it's like, it's it's probably the Hitchcock movie I've seen the most. Mm-hmm. Um, I even saw it last year at the Movie Co., like a really beautiful digital projection of it. And it really, really got to me seeing it on the big screen just as much as seeing it at home and on, on, on a TV screen. And just kind of like really taking in the subtleties of Anthony Perkins. Yeah, Anthony Perkins is amazing. Yeah. You know, again, it's not like a completely showy performance. And there's even a long stretch of fascinating, almost procedural-like minutia of him trying to clean up the murder. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like in any other movie, people would think that, well, that's tedious. No. It's fascinating. Oh, and that scene... Um, where he pushes the car into the the pond or whatever it is and doesn't think it's going to sink all the way. That's humor. That's Hitchcock Hitchcock for you. Yeah, that's a really memorable scene. Um, And and he's chewing these, like, seeds the whole time. Yeah. (laughs) He's just, like, gnawing on them. One of the bird seeds. Yeah. (laughs) I think the most memorable thing about his character to me is that scene where he is talking to... They're eating sandwiches in the back. Yeah, and... He's surrounded by these stuffed birds, um, and like every shot of him seems to have a different type of bird in it. Mm-hmm. Um, just like, and he's he is a very bird like. Um, he is like he's chewing on those seeds. He has sort of like a hawkish look and like a peckish yeah look to him. It's like he has a beak. Yeah, <laughs> and I. It's it's something I don't necessarily understand. Like I don't know what to make of that always, because mm-hmm. um, you you want to say like oh he's like a predator he's like a hawk but that's that doesn't really like necessarily explain it to me because he's so meek and I don't know unassuming yeah yeah that 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 sequence was is probably my first memory of somebody pulling me as well a teacher pulling me aside. Um, you know, even after class, I think I'm I'm pretty sure she did this during class. It's you know, memory's fuzzy, but highlighting specific scenes, almost like freeze framing, and going, notice he tilted the angle here, and notice how, you know, the lighting's changed here, and it's to indicate like he's becoming more fragile and vulnerable, and it's like these are things I never thought of before. You know, and I never thought of like, you know, Orson Welles drilling a hole into the, um, into the uh, ground just so he can get the camera to tilt up at, at such a low angle that, um, you know, Kane looks larger than life, mm. and doing all these incredible inventive techniques just to get the exact uh, feeling across with the camera, and Hitchcock just did, does that constantly in this movie. You know, in the shower sequence, I don't remember how many cuts there are. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, I don't know exactly either. something or 72 or maybe, but I just, I'm always amazed at the effectiveness 
and that was also the that's easily the first time I was so taken with how a score can sound you know can complement something mm-hmm. an action you know this the, the the sound of the of violins basically emulating a stabbing more or less and really it's hard not to think of that scene and not also think of the music that accompanies right. that scene um but yeah, yeah that music is also it's so iconic and it pops up everywhere it's mm-hmm. like almost hard to remember sometimes where it came from but it's so I, like I wish I could watch that as someone in the sixties who had never heard that before or like seen yeah. any references to that scene because I feel like you come across references to all of that. At least I think I did before I ever saw it, which might be another reason why the first time I saw it, um, it didn't like really affect me as much as I might have thought, just because you encounter it in so many places. Right. Same with the when I saw it, first saw The Exorcist. At probably too young of an age, I, w- I was expecting it to scare me, but then I was like, I don't know, Freddy Krueger kind of scared me a little bit more. <laughs> and I just, that's a silly statement to make now because having watched The Exorcist for the show um, a couple years ago, I totally freak out now. You know, I totally get, like, because I, I reframe it. I reframe it in, in terms of, like, paranoia from a parent and psychological uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm able to like just think of it differently, other in terms of like, well, she's possessed by the devil, and it's supposed to be scary. Uh, I just think of it in different terms as I've gotten older to make it more effective. Um, but I always wonder what would it be like to be in that theater when people saw The Exorcist for the first time and were passing out and like puking, yeah, <laughs> yeah. from shock. Um, and yeah, you're right. With what would it be like to watch Psycho with an undesensitized audience? Uh, completely un- unprepared for the fact that the, the the star of this film is about to get killed. Mm-hmm. And what, you know, like, all bets are off at that point. You just don't know what to expect. Um, but you, ha- you also have to highlight the death of the detective in this film as something, a shot I, I don't see replicated as much. I mean, maybe De Palma did it at some point because he loves to ape Hitchcock as much as humanly possible, but the uh, the death of the detective as he's falling down the yeah. stairs and that camera movement. How does he... I was wondering, actually, how he did that when I watched it. It's something I should know. <laughs> <laughs> Doing a podcast on Hitchcock and yeah. Psycho, it's like something I probably... You know, I'm sure there's a documentary or behind the scenes or making of or uh, at least somebody talking about how that was done. So... Maybe we'll bring that up for next time, because I'm curious, too, because that's an amazing shot. Yeah. That's almost as effective as the shower sequence, but in a different way and much quicker. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just... I, yeah, I, I, I really do love the, the, the whole dynamic of them talking together and trying to relate. And it's clear that Norman is desperate for connection with another human being other than the ghost of his mother. Yeah. Um, Like, he's a lonely, lonely guy, and here's somebody finally staying at his motel, and he wants to have some kind of interpersonal interaction, and he's trying desperately to be human and relate socially, but it's very difficult for him, and once mother is brought into the picture, he, you know, completely changes his tune and it 
it's it really is one of the strongest um, Freudian films to come along at that time. Just to um, highlight the idea of sexual expression being dangerous and uh, unhinged and not accepted mm-hmm. because you know the whole idea is Norman has sexual feelings for her mother comes out to stop that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that is so like I I remember trying to or I was writing a paper on psycho for class and just kind of like going, well, this whole movie is really about sexual frustration <laughs> in a way. Like I mean, once we get to Norman Bates, it's just like he wants to have a relationship and he wants to experience intimacy. But the ghost of his mother keeps popping up, and he can't he can't do it. He can't express himself. He can't have a normal relationship because there's a demon living inside of him still. Plus, he killed his mother. I mean, you find that out. I don't know if you find that out in this film, or maybe at the end you do. But there are sequels where, of course, <laughs> you have to get into the backstory of everything that happened. Oh, there's a whole TV show now. Yeah. Which I haven't watched, but I might at some point. Yeah, Bates. I'd be curious. <laughs> I yeah, I am still fascinated with the whole mythology, the whole Norman Bates character, um, and Anthony Perkins. Man, I mean, he's just so damn good. Yeah, and unfortunately, like because he's so damn good in this, he became typecast, and like there's a film called Edge of Sanity, and uh, you know he's sort of. I'm sure there are other performances of his where he doesn't, you know, play a psycho killer or um, somebody dealing with mental illness. But, uh, yeah, I just, it's it's unfortunate they became typecast after this film, but he's so strong in this that it's hard, I think it was just hard to shake Norman Bates from Anthony Perkins, um, you know? So, I mean, I, I think that's that's... That means he did a fantastic job when you associate a character with an actor so vividly. Yeah. And I think the last scene is especially strong with him when his mother has just completely taken over. Yeah. Um, That that scene is... I, I was talking about this earlier with the psychologist or psychiatrist. You probably know the difference between those, but I don't... <laughs> Well, psychiatrists can prescribe medication, but I'm pretty okay. sure, I think it's a psychologist in this. Okay, yeah, he has this very, um, like, 1960s clinical description of what's mm-hmm. going on, um, and it's very, like, like out of a book, <laughs> um, and then uh, you see what's actually going on um and it's just so scary. His mother, like, she has completely taken over, and she's like, uh, but even the mother herself is sort of like an unreliable narrator, almost. Yeah. So there's just, like, so many levels to this uh, identity that are really scary, um, where she's like, oh, my son did this, but actually I did it like, cause she's like, she sees the, the, um, the fly crawling on her hand and she's like, 
I hope they're watching because I'm not even gonna I'm not gonna kill this fly. They'll mm-hmm. they'll see and they'll know. Like I wouldn't even hurt a fly. <laughs> so yeah. it's like it really that was her all along. Great. Yeah, and then there's this uh the fade out where you see her her skull for just a brief second. Or Yeah. That's that that's that's incredible. I'm not I mean I always wondered if we just cut to that rather than the psychologist explaining everything. But I think for the time, and also I think Hitchcock meant that to be a little humorous, just to like, I, he, he really did think that audiences were pretty dumb. Like he went on record as saying like, sometimes you really do have to spell everything out. Nowadays things have changed with directors not needing to do that or feeling like, oh, audiences won't get it. But Hitchcock did think that. Mm. He, did, he did think audiences won't get it unless you come out and say it in a lot of his films. And here, he did the whole psychologist speech as a way of poking fun of just his feelings about the audience. And like, okay, I have to literally explain everything to you, and this is my humorous way of doing it. Uh, but I never, I never was a fan of that scene... Just because I'm like, well, I kind of already figured it out, sir. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not necessary nowadays because we're all we all have the internet. We all know a lot more about mental illness more than ever. But back then, of course, I, I'm sure critics and audiences didn't have qualms with that and didn't like go, well, that was dumb to include that scene. But I, I everything about this movie is incredible. It still holds up. That's the one thing. It's like a lot of his films don't feel dated. Like there are certain things and certain moments, and obviously some of the portrayals of women, as we've discussed, can be dated. And just the idea of you know marriage completing the the coupling process, uh, it seems apparent in a lot of his films. But um, yeah, I just. It can't get past how how brilliant Psycho is. Yeah. It's a classic. Yeah, I almost um, forget about it sometimes. Like, it's (laughs) it's sort of... um, Not in a league of its own, but its own sort of entity, like, within his, his work... It's just such a um, a unique film in general. It's just unlike anything else, except for the Gus Van Sant <laughs> remake. Well, yeah, Halloween kind of came close in playing with form and expectations and uh, sexual repression, or at least the the brother seeing his sister nude causes him to act out uh, an act of violence at the beginning. So I think John Carpenter was hugely influenced by Psycho to make Halloween. And um, they're both masterpieces. Psycho is a little bit more refined and because there was a budget. And, you know, the, the Halloween is just something else to me, though. It's It's one of those slasher films that I think transcends genre in a way. It's I mean it's a horror film through and through. It's a slasher movie, but it's so unnerving and 
kind of psychological in t- in, in just in execution and just offering a point of view shot from the get go. I think it's just as special as Psycho. And I'm glad that Ebert agreed in his review. Like, oh, did he? Yeah, well, when 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 Halloween first came out, he's like, "This I would compare this movie to Psycho." Oh, that seems like a movie that Ebert would hate. Yeah, you would. You know, I should go back and look at that. Last House. Well, no, he liked Last House. So no, I thought he didn't like Last House. No, he hated I Spit on Your Grave. Oh. But he actually liked Last House on the Left, which I don't like. Some people love it. I, I don't know. We don't have to go on on a rant about that. Um, Yeah, I could go into, like, a slasher movie mode. It's not not necessarily for now, but... (laughs) No, I mean, around Halloween. (laughs) Why not? So the first hour of The Birds, I'm pretty restless with the establishing of relationships in this movie. (laughs) Like... It's it's one of the few times where the slow burn kind of wears wears out its welcome, for me. I but again, you mentioned Tippi Hedren, she's phenomenal. Yes. <laughs> so I mean, she's a compelling character to watch through and through. I think it's him playing with the audience again in a way that's kind of like, all right, when the bird's gonna come, and I think okay. that's that's his intent. Mm-hmm. I think he's doing that to fuck with the audience a little bit. Like, oh, you saw the birds are in the title, you saw that there are birds in the opening credits. Let's give you practically close to an hour of establishing relationships here. Yeah. And people and the characters. Um, Yeah, it starts out as like a romantic comedy. Pretty much. Um, They meet at a pet store. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's another really interesting scene. I love that pet store scene where he mistakes her for someone who works there and she just Mm -hmm. goes with it yeah um is like way better at pretending to be a pet store employee (laughs) than i ever would be (laughs) she's just and she just kind of rolls with it (laughs) even when she's wrong it's like very impressive but yeah i actually i like i do like the slow burn um just because or like well they say that Hitchcock makes thrillers, but that's not like that's not true entirely. And I feel yeah. like he's playing. I have, I almost feel like he's playing with genres in this part, where he's like, "Well, people think they're watching a thriller. I'm going to start them out on this romantic comedy and see what happens." Yeah, and just suddenly like undercut it with. Uh, I feel like uh, the moment when it becomes a thriller is when she's in the boat and suddenly the seagull swoops down on her, and then suddenly it's a completely different thing right but i yeah i actually like that that it starts out really slow and you're not sure exactly why you're watching what you're watching watching it recently i've forgotten that's that that's how it begins to where i was like really we're gonna spend this much time my goodness but now that i'm acclimated to it and expecting it the next time i'd be like okay now i know what to expect and i won't be restless probably um I don't think it's bad. It's just... I'm not necessarily like in dire need to see birds attacking people right away. Because the Jaws effect works mm-hmm. through and through. For most most of these types of movies where we're going to slowly get, get you there. Um, once the bird appears on the doorstep and all hell starts breaking loose, I am 100% in with this movie. Like, even if... 
even if the effects look a little dated. Yeah, they do. <laughs> it still doesn't take away from how terrifying it is mm-hmm. to see nature turn against man. Yeah. So I and again I mentioned this earlier with the sound being so distinctive that I'm like, how did he do that with the bird sound? It's so weird and eerie. Uh, it's it's almost akin to. In the Lady Vanishes, every time they blow the train whistle, it sounds like a woman screaming. Oh, that's really neat. I hadn't noticed Which, that. Yeah, well, it's like it was so weird, and um, I knew it's going to show up. It, it's going to it's going to show up in the plot at some point, and it kind of does. To where they're like, was that the train whistle or was that a woman screaming? You know. Mm-hmm. So again, him accentuating certain sounds here is so effective. That I'm just kind of like in awe when these birds start attacking and um, the point of view shots of the birds and the birds eye view when the um, the gas station blows up. Oh yeah, that that whole moment is. I w- I'm still in shock by that. Like I just the guy catching on fire and I'm just like holy crap. Oh yeah, and there there's this comedic moment during that sequence where there's all these reaction shots of Tippi Hedren, um, <laughs> when she's like, how could this be happening? Like, uh, yeah. when it blows up and then there's a shot of her and then you see what she's looking at and there's another shot, like all these weird angles of her face where I feel like Hitchcock is sort of playing with his own, um, sort of formalism or the way that he puts things together or the yeah. way, classical film is put together with shot and reverse shot it's this weird deconstruction and it's like really funny it's like this funny moment in this um horrific sort of scene he knows what where to inject levity i think yeah and again play with your expectations and it's very possible that something we would find horrific he would find very funny Mm -hmm. and vice versa um but yeah i mean just the the idea of the natural environment turning against you. There's a reason why, like, Stephen King practically built a career on, you know, a car or a dog or just things that you're used to being a certain way. Right. And dependable and consistent, suddenly taking on a life of their own and being out of control and turning against you and attacking you is is just always effective in a horror film. It's always going to get to you. It's always going to work. And Hitchcock knows how to do that here um, very, very well. There's, like, um, moments of violence that are through, um, like, windows and telephone booths, and again, eyeglasses playing a role. Like, a, a couple of times, I think, people lose their eyeglasses because of the birds attacking them. and Or they, they lose their it. eyes completely. Yeah, or yeah. lose their eyes completely. So it, it could be another whole... The world is blind and oblivious to what's really going on kind of attitude that I believe he felt a lot of the times. Um, But yeah, I mean, just the camera, you know, taking on a a life of its own and almost subjected to assault and, you know, coming down on the audience in the same way the birds are is really, really eerie throughout this movie. I just... I find it really hard to shake, and the final moment is just beautiful. Like, I find it haunting, and and her attack is so... Ugh, oh, yeah. God. Like, I'm just like, 
I, I cringe throughout that whole sequence. But then the, the sort of silent, haunting final moment of them walking out and all those birds are just sitting there is really incredible. Like, there's no resolution. There's no, like, oh, we figure out what's going on and let's and we save the world. It's, we don't know what to do. We're just going to keep moving. Yeah. That's the final note you have to end the movie on. Yeah, there's this, like, um, when they're driving away and there's just this sea, the birds just, like, fill up the whole frame. Yeah. Just, like, reaching out into the distance. It's, like, this, like, prehistoric image. Um just sort of all the humanity is gone. It's very, very bleak. And I've always found this movie kind of confusing. Like, I'm not sure what exactly he's trying to say. Or maybe I'm looking too hard, but I'm like, what? When I try to think about what this movie is actually about, um, I'm never really sure what to think. Hmm. Like underneath it all. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Is it just a traditional horror film? You know, the kind that Stephen King might have done, where birds just attack. And they attack for no reason. And that's scary. Clearly, like, maybe there doesn't need to be a larger theme at play other than just the idea of things turning against you when you don't expect them to. Uh, I, f- I mean, that's... You know, I, I, do, I mean, he does emphasize eyes a lot in this movie. So I sort of lean towards the, the blindness of society kind of a thing. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the kid's birthday party gets assaulted, and at the school they get assaulted. Oh, that's true. It, it's I- just like a societal... Um, sort of um, breakdown. One of the things I noticed at the birthday party, um, the daughter is like blindfolded when she gets attacked oh, for the yeah. first time. So there is definitely a recurrent theme of of Being vision. Blinded. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And she thinks that it's one of the other kids who's touched her, <laughs> which is <Right. laughs> pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, like, you you think you can go swimming in the ocean and you're safe, or you think you can just go walking outside and you're safe from, you know, the the natural world. And when it attacks, it's just a scary, frightening idea. Um, maybe in the um, Hitchcock Truffaut book, he elaborates more on what he was trying to convey to the audience, other than making just, a, like, a... Um, a pure horror film of sorts. I wonder that too. If there's like a a greater theme or central thesis that he had in mind when he made this movie. In a way, it's you know, I mean, he made movies after this that we'll definitely talk about in the sequel episode. But I love the idea of this. Maybe it's why I chose this as the last movie for now. But that last image is sort of being the the note to go out on. Like, I think if this had been his final film and that all those birds just sitting there, you're not sure if they're going to attack, you're not sure if they're at peace now, or if they're just going to sit there forever, you're, you have to be on alert. I just like the idea of that being the final 
moment of Hitchcock's career, even though it's not. Yeah. <laughs> In the same way, like, I was sort of painting this idea of, you know, Sidney Lumet's um, portrayal of the world at the very end of his career in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead is one of bleakness and just sort of realizing that the world is an ugly, selfish place. Um, whereas when he first started making films with 12 Angry Men, he had faith in the system and that, you know, a juror with a lot of idealism and true belief can save the day and, and free an innocent man. Right. From from being imprisoned. So it's just like, I always try to find, you know, kind of like the bookend idea of what would this career have to say overall? And with Hitchcock, I'm not sure. And that's probably because I, I don't think I've seen his last movie, which was Frenzy? It, I think it might be Family Plot. Family Plot, you're right. But there, I think that's it, yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen Family Plot. I haven't either. There's I did a lot see, to see Frenzy still. and I really liked it, but... We can talk about that another time. <laughs> we certainly will. We have so much left to discuss with Hitchcock. And I'm so glad that we got to do this because you brought up some amazing points that I hadn't thought about that are going to make, when I rewatch them, I'm going to think even more deeply about the movies. So I thank you for that. Yeah, it's, it's been great talking to you, too. Yeah. Um, now, I know really quickly, though, do you recommend Marnie, right? I do recommend Marnie, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to bump that up on my cue. Yeah. <laughs> I think, well, I think people are starting to recognize um, mm-hmm. that it's an important part of his sort of, uh, his work. But also, if you like Tippi Hedren, um, if you like the themes of Vertigo... It's a it's an interesting, very interesting movie to watch, and also uh, Sean Connery is surprising in it. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, uh, it's like you wouldn't expect. He's very. It's a very unexpected person. I feel like to see in a Hitchcock mm. movie, but um, it works. Um, once again, Hitchcock draws out something in him that you probably haven't seen before. Um. Yeah, it's a very enjoyable experience, um, and I do recommend it. And I, I really would like to revisit it also, because I've only seen it the one time. Okay. Yeah, I'm excited to see it, because I've heard good things. And the same comparison to Vertigo, and the idea of a man trying to shape another woman into his, into the ideal he's painted in his mind kind of an idea... Right, and once again, there's um, a relationship, a, like an estranged relationship with a mother that comes up. <laughs> what a shock! Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! Oh poor Hitch. I bet. Uh, I hope. I hope he had a good relationship with his mom. Um, I, I mean, I know that uh, he had a wonderful relationship with Alma most of his life. Like uh, you know, they met early on in his career. And they had a very loving relationship, but I just wonder how she processed, like, the fact that he made his feelings pretty well known about all the actresses that he right. was working with. I mean, I don't know if that sort of came out in hindsight with biographies or whatever, but, you know, knowing what we know now is like, man, 
He was obsessed with all his leading ladies. Yeah. <laughs> Did you see that movie? That I haven't. I haven't either. Yeah. I, I thought about watching it for this yeah. as a weird, as a reference point. I heard but... It's just okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it might be interesting just to see now. Mm-hmm. I'm inter- I'm I'm in the mood for some lighter fare for a little while, but um, I, I gotta say, binging on Hitchcock was a blast. Like I never once felt like, oh man, I gotta watch a Hitchcock movie? Ugh. You know, I was always glad to revisit something, even Psycho, which I've seen a bunch of times. I watched it last year. Um, you know, so I mean, I'm I just, yeah, I'm glad I saw The Wrong Man for the first time. Oh yeah. And Notorious. So I mean, that's that's what I love about doing this show, too, is that like you rediscover things, or you, when you rewatch something, it grows stronger. So... Yeah. Hitchcock. What can you say? He's yeah. one of the greatest directors <laughs> of all time for a reason, and sorry it's taken so long to get to him, but um, we finally did, and I couldn't be happier with the conversation. What would be your top five? I'll go first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and here I am asking you the question, I'm like, I'm going to probably have to go first, because I forgot to mention this to you earlier, that at the end of the episodes, we try to give a top three or a top five from uh, the director we discussed. Now, originally number five was North by Northwest, but after our conversation, I'm going to bump it up. I'm, or I'm going to bump it down, I should say, to number six. My number five is The Wrong Man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talked about why that film is so great. Uh, number four is Psycho. Number three is The Lady Vanishes. Number two is Vertigo, and number one is Rear Window. But Vertigo and Rear Window, that's just neck and neck. Yeah, that's true. I think, I mean, I think mine is pretty similar. But, yeah, I like, I don't know if I can rank them. That's but okay. I'll give you, I'll give you five. <laughs> that's fine. Um, Vertigo, Rear Window, uh, Wrong Man, um... I think the birds probably makes it up there. And then let's see what would get fifth place. Um, yeah, this is actually really hard. Um, I know. It always is. <laughs> Even with a director like, I don't know, Gene Campion. <laughs> yeah, I guess. It's still that, hard to just, like, I don't know, make a list, but. I'm going to have to go psycho, I think. Before we conclude this episode, I'd be remiss in not mentioning what Patrick Rapole's top five Hitchcock films are. You know him as the former co-host of the Directors Club podcast, which is the very show you're listening to right now. His number five would be The Lady Vanishes. Number four is Rebecca. Number three is Psycho. Number two is the 39 steps, and number one is rear window. <laughs> Good choices, Patrick Rapole. You'd know your Hitchcock indeed. But there's so many other ones that I watched for the purpose of this podcast that I just really loved. Um, and I feel like they're probably underseen. And I would I would definitely like recommend that people check them out. Like frenzy is great it has like a Dario argento vibe to it yeah (laughs) well then i should watch Um, it's really fun um and it has some interesting themes um 
And then Lifeboat, I also really liked. Yeah, I saw that a long time ago. Yeah. I really liked it, too. Very interesting. Um, yeah, there's just... There's a lot of them. To Catch a Thief, also. You can't go I wrong, like really. I for Murder. I think that's a fun movie. Yeah. Ray Milland, I think, is in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's another... That's one of the earliest ones I saw when I was younger, too. There's, there's so much. I mean, I also... You know, I was going to bring up The Trouble with Harry just because it's a weird movie. Um, I mean, Shirley MacLaine is great. She's always great. But uh, Hitchcock's... Yeah, I don't know. Some of his dialogue, especially towards women in that movie, really irked me. <laughs> As I sent some stills right, to you. Yeah. But, like, some of the lines in that was just like... You know, you meet somebody for the first time and go, I'd love to paint you naked. <laughs> like, that's wonderful. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff like that in 39 Steps, or he gets out of a lot of situations mm-hmm. um, by being like, oh, well, I can't remember exactly. Um, or he's like, oh, um, I have to, I'm having an affair with this woman, and I have to escape because that's her lover out there. And Yeah. Oh, and the yeah, milk, yeah. it's a milkman, and the milkman's like, oh, why didn't you say so before? <laughs> like, let me give you my uniform, and... Yeah. And this will all be okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really funny. That, yeah, that's... 39 Steps is great. Yeah, there's... There's so much to cover, still. And we'll get to it eventually, we promise. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it'll be exciting to, you know, check out a lot of films I haven't seen or rewatch some others. Um, yeah, I feel like an episode on... Um like underrated or less seen Hitchcock yeah. would be really great. Definitely. And that'll, that'll definitely happen. I think, I think that's kind of why I felt like, well, let's skip over North by Northwest because everybody knows how great that movie is. I mean, you could say the same for, you know, psycho, but I think there's just certain moments that when you're talking about Hitchcock as a whole, you sort of have to bring up some of the amazing feats that he pulled off in that film. Um, but yeah, like I said, we're going to come back to this guy because we're huge fans. <laughs> um, you know, but like I said, there's I have issues with some of his dialogue and some of his portrayals of, of female characters and, you know, the, the, the formulations of love stories sort of being tacked on. But I'm willing to forgive those flaws because of the strengths being so great throughout. Um... But yeah, cool. Yeah, I think we're gonna we're gonna have fun revisiting Hitchcock in the future, and I hope you will all join us too. So, uh, thank you everybody for listening, and thank you Kate for being on the show. This was great. You're gonna be on more. <laughs> I, I hope at least. Yeah, I mean, I hope to. I hope you'll have me back. You're uber smart. <laughs> and um, where can people? find you i know your selective viewing blog selectiveviewing.com is my blog um i've been doing periodic movie reviews for tiny mixtapes um oh nice yeah so if you like new movies you can check that out um it's pretty much it i i tweet (laughs) yeah we try yeah we try our best 
Yeah, everybody, thank you again. Um, please visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. You can check out all the wonderful shows at the Now Playing Network, uh, which is at nowplayingnetwork.net, including the newly launched Supporting Characters, hosted by Directors Club guest and frequent contributor Bill Ackerman. He just interviewed um, a guy, I believe, by the name of David Blair. Uh, and he was very good friends with Zulowski. I don't think that's how you say his name. Zulowski. Yeah. The guy who did Possession, who recently passed away. Love that movie. Yeah, as well you should. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, it's like they were buddies. So he interviewed a really close friend of that director who had amazing things to say. Like really deep insights into film and film analysis. So his show is off to a great start based on one episode and one interview. So I'm really excited to see where he goes with supporting characters, and I hope you'll all subscribe to that. Um, I am actually taking a month off, which is crazy. But there will be a couple of episodes um, between now and then, so do stay tuned to your feed. It's not like it's going to be empty. Um, In particular, the next episode... I won't be on, which is crazy. It's Adam Egoyan, hosted by Bill Ackerman. What a shock. And um, Al. Al, man, I so have trouble with his last name, and I'm Polish, and he's Polish. It's um, Kichwowski, and I I messed it up. I'll have to actually go back to listen to the Kubrick episode to remember how he pronounced it. But anyway, Al will be back, uh, along with Bill, to talk Adam Egoyan. Which I'm very excited about. Yeah, I'm excited about that. <laughs> I love Exotica, and I love Sweet Hereafter. So um, there's a lot more to cover from that guy. And I hope you will all listen to that despite my absence. Actually, you might even like it even more. Who knows? <laughs> but it's going to be wonderful. And there will be possibly a special bonus episode coming your way. And I don't want to spoil what that's going to be. But if you've been a loyal subscriber... From the beginning, you pretty much know to expect something on a particular day in April that we tend to put out as for fun. That's all I'm going to say. So, I I have no doubt you're going to enjoy future episodes with Kate, and I have no doubt you're going to enjoy the Adam McGoyan episode. Um, My next episode will most likely be at the end of April. It might be M. Night Shyamalan. And then... I could not be more excited to tell you that my talk show radio hero, Nick DiGilio, has agreed to come on the show in early May to talk about Martin Scorsese, which wasn't even on the calendar. I talked with him about it um, when we both went to see Interstellar at the Music Box, and he is totally on board. It'll be an honor, and I will be nervous as fuck. So be expecting that as well. Thank you all for listening, and um, visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com, as always. And thank you, Kate, for being on the show. Thank you. Good night, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. I am Jim Laskowski, and you've been listening to the Directors Club Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.